The past year has seen a 1,900% rise in anti-Asian hate crime in New York City alone, with 2,800 incidents reported across 47 states and Washington, D.C. This is a national crisis, and we need your help to call it out. Call it a crime. Call it what it is, racism. Let's stand up together against hate. Learn more at StopAAPIHate.org. Welcome to another edition of the Double A Team. My name is Ken Fang, along with Stephen Nagishi. Glad you're with us on the Barroom Network, uh, streaming live here on this Monday. And uh, Stephen, uh, nice to see you again. And we got another action-packed show today. Absolutely, Ken. Uh, so much happened uh, between uh, tonight and uh, our last uh, show back in February. So we have a lot to cover tonight. And we have two great guests. Who do we have tonight? Well, we have uh, author Chris Herring, a Chicago native, uh, Northwestern uh, Medell School of Journalism grad, who recently wrote a, uh, a very uh, popular New York Times bestseller uh, regarding the 1990s Knicks. I'm sure there are a lot of uh, you know basketball fans are on this channel following the Bulls and uh, remember the massive battle that the Bulls and the Knicks have the epic battles in the early 90s. Uh, the title there, Blood in the Gardens, the Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks. Uh, he is uh, coming to uh, talk about the book and his uh, career as a author. And then the second guest, uh, true to our uh, goal of our show, we have Mark Kim uh, in the uh, LA area. He is the uh, a former uh, Missouri uh, journalism uh, grad, grad member. He works for The Athletic and also worked for the ESPM and a uh, member of the uh, Asian American Journalism, uh, or is it Journalist Association? Mm -hmm. Yes. He's a member. Uh, he's going to talk to us about uh, his background and the uh, working in the industry as an Asian American. And we look forward to having them both on the show later on tonight. But let's get on to our first topic, which is always what's going on in the news. And Stephen, um, what's come on, of course, what's happening, we can't ignore it. Uh, what's happening in Ukraine, the Russian um, invasion of Ukraine, which occurred, it seemed, it seems been, it's been going on for a long time, but it's basically day 10. It's been also about two weeks. Um, it happened right after the ending of the Olympics in Beijing. And it's ha and there are a lot of things not only affecting the the real world but also the sports world as well. We're seeing um, uh, sports leagues and associate and and like um, organizations uh, calling for boycotts and calling for the end of various events or at least suspending events in Russia, like the Formula One Grand Prix in St. Petersburg. Uh, the Formula One Grand Prix, actually, that's in Sochi. Um, that is, you also have the UEFA Champions League final, that is in St. Petersburg, and plus the suspension of uh, Russian participation in the World Cup 
World Cup qualifying, um, also in uh, the Paralympics, which is current currently going on in uh, Beijing. So a lot of things going on, uh, Stephen, especially with the uh, para, with uh, in the sports world affecting what's going on with Russia uh, in the their invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, the uh, the backlash has been very much swift. Um, you got to hit where it hurts uh, to some degree, you know. Um, it's obviously a very, very difficult decision because obviously the athletes themselves are not at fault here. Unless, of course, um, you have uh, people like Alex Ovechkin, who obviously has been seen taking photos side by side with uh, Vladimir Putin on more than one occasion. And obviously that photo is still probably at the... Uh, on his Instagram, if I'm, if I recall, and uh, he hasn't made his position cleared, and um, you know there are several Russian athletes who have uh, said no to war. Uh, tennis star Dmitry uh, Medvedev, who's the new number one, dethroning Novak Djokovic. Said not so fast. Oh, uh, and then the uh, uh, the, I'll, I'll, you could play that clip if you don't mind again. Said not so fast. And he might just have a message, Andrei Rublev. I think we can get behind that. And so that was uh, Andrei Rublev, uh, I believe, in the recent uh, tournament that uh, he was in the uh, uh, involved in, that he wrote "No War, Please" uh, on television. Uh, sorry, uh, TV camera. Yeah. So there are, you know, certain athletes who have spoken out. You know, the Russians. Um, I forgot the name of the uh, the the athlete today who wore a Z on his uh, uniform at the, uh, uh, you know, the event that got uh, the, the gymnastics, I'm sorry, the gymnastics event that he wore a Z mark, which is a uh, in, in unified support of uh, Russians invading uh, Ukraine that yes. he got into trouble. So there are uh, certain athletes who are obviously, uh, unfortunately for the, the war and invasion of uh, Ukraine, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, we, we also saw when the uh, war broke out, women's player Evita Svitolina, who is from Ukraine, uh, saying that she will donate her uh, winnings uh, towards the efforts, in, towards the relief efforts in Ukraine. Um, most everyone, as you mentioned, with the exception of few athletes, have come out in support of Ukraine and saying that they want to be united in also uh, denouncing what's happening. Uh, we've also seen uh, what's going on with the with Chelsea, the owner who is a Russian oligarch, Abramovich. Uh, he is going to be selling the team. He knows that he is going to get sanctions uh, on him, so he's trying to sell that team before the sanctions affect him. Uh, we also have seen, um, as we mentioned, other events that have happened uh, that are being uh, canceled in Russia, uh, Russia being Russia, the, the team of Russia being suspended from the World Cup, FIFA doing that, UEFA uh, taking away the Champions League final, which is supposed to be in St. Petersburg in May. So, Stephen, we can always say that sports is, in a sense, trying to uh, steer us away from reality, but the real world is really hitting sports, especially when you talk about Russia and Ukraine. No. Um... You know, the IOC, we've been very, very critical. Uh, you and I have been uh, throughout the uh, the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics. Mm -hmm. uh, 
um, when we had Professor Jules Boykoff. And um, the authoritative uh, nations and figures have long used sports uh, as a way of promoting um, themselves as well as the country. And it's no exception with the World Cup being held at Qatar, where thousands of workers have died uh, ever since the, uh, the Qatar has been uh, awarded the, the World Cup. That's also a, a very uh, you know, authoritative regime that uh, these Western sports organizations have long you know, uh, bowed down to. And now they're paying a massive price. Uh, you know, IOC didn't uh, go hard enough uh, during the uh, the Winter Olympics with the skating. You know, if you remember uh, Valieva with the doping and everything. And uh, initially, you know, FIFA tried to do the IOC approach, but the backlash was severe because the nations uh, that was supposed to uh, face um, Russia, you know, Poland made it clear that they're not, uh, willing to play if Russia is not being sanctioned, as did the other uh, nations like Sweden, um, among others, who were in the World Cup qualifying, who were supposed to play Russia eventually, uh, depending on the playoff outcome of the playoffs. They made it clear. So the backlash was swift. And, you know, obviously uh, the, the FIFA wilted. And, uh, it's uh, it's it's become a little bit of a pariah, as you can see on the um, the article. You know, the Putin and Russia have fast become uh, sports world pariahs. If you look at the uh, New Yorker, uh, New York uh, magazine, about how a lot of Russian athletes, you know, the, the especially in this country, so many NHL players are making millions, but yet you have uh, athletes like Alex Ovechkin who are still somewhat uh, coy about, uh, you know, his intentions or his support for Putin. We know where he is support at the moment, regardless of what they say. Um, you know, we had a lot of uh, Ukrainian athletes speaking out against uh, the Russian uh, soccer players for not speaking out and Russian uh, national uh, team captain, you know, uh, speaking out, uh, you know, saying that he's not a politician or anything like that. You know, that's a real cheap cop out, in my opinion. You don't have to be a, a politician to know that, um, you know, the, the, the war uh, is wrong. And what they're doing is, is uh, of uh, a genocide uh, every day that we're seeing, you know, people being shot at and being killed on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, the intel that the Chinese officials knew that the Russia were going to invade Ukraine, but... Because China was hosting, and we all know the relationship between Russia and China uh, as a you know a, you know dictatorship communism country that they support each other. Russia had to wait until the Olympics was finished. So this obviously adds more fuel to the fire of the you know anti uh, Asian American sentiment uh, that has been brewing in this country. And just today, uh, Russia put out a list of nations that it feels is hostile towards them, including the United States. That also includes Taiwan, which China is trying to, uh, well, has said is a runaway province. I, we don't know if they're going to be trying to try to take over, but maybe this is an impotence for them to do so. They also included a couple of other co uh, countries, including San Marino. I'm sure if uh, other people do are not aware that San Marino was actually a country in Europe, but it was interesting to see some of the names uh, 
that were uh, brought up by Russia today as part of those hostile countries uh, towards the United States, of course, uh, not a surprise. Um, Taiwan, not a surprise because it's a, uh, it, Russia is going to side with China as well. So it's very interesting, uh, Stephen, um, how this is playing out. As you mentioned, um, the criticism of Russian athletes uh, who refuse to speak out, um, the, also the criticism of Russian athletes who are just guilt by association, some who uh, feel that they don't want to be uh, locked in with this. But unfortunately, as we mentioned, uh, when you're when you're um, part of such a volatile situation, um, we're going to be seeing something like this uh, play out. And uh, it's it, as long as this conflict continues, Stephen, I think we're going to be seeing more and more of this, the criticism of Russian athletes, the criticism of those who, do, who don't speak out. Oh, absolutely. We're seeing it over you know, Europe right now, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the soccer players, the Ukrainian players, um, you know, the, the support that they have been getting uh, on and off the pitch. Um, you know, uh, German club Schalke and then uh, Manchester United, they've already ended ties with the uh, uh, Gazprom, which is the uh, yes. Russian uh, natural energy company that has been a long sponsor of uh, Schalke, which is in financial troubles, as well as their uh, major uh, partner with FIFA World Cup. Uh, Manchester mm -hmm. ending uh, ties with Aeroflot, which is the uh, Russian airlines. Um, obviously, the backlash has been swift. Um, as you mentioned, Ken, you know, uh, Roman Abramovich, uh, who owns the uh, Chelsea, where Christian Pulisic played for, has mm -hmm. already announced that he is uh, transferring the, uh, you know, his ownership and, and putting the team on sale. And will donate that money to you know Ukrainian uh, efforts and rebuilding, which is somewhat of a, uh, a joke in itself, considering um, his ties with uh, Putin for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, but the backstory is Roman Abramovich actually was born in Ukraine. His mother was a Ukrainian. Yes. So. You know, you're going to hear his name because I read that he was actually getting involved in the peace talks for some some weird reasons. And then and, and here in Chicago, we just uh, read a crazy story uh, yesterday or earlier today that uh, embattled owner Tom Ricketts and his family are interested in buying uh, FC Chelsea, uh, yes. which is a, a, a weird story in itself, considering just how badly they have uh, managed the, uh, you know, the Cubs and their spending. And now you're going to spend more like a three four billion dollars on a soccer team you know that will you know that will certainly go well with the uh, angry chicago cubs fans who are probably pissed at the baseball uh <laughs> is, is on uh strike and probably on a lockdown for foreseeable future but that's obviously for another time um the others obviously the russians uh you know uh, the f1 you mentioned russia is no longer hosting the um one of the team, uh, Haas Racing Team, which is an American team, ironically, they had a driver named Dmitry Mazapan, whose father is a, a billionaire oligarch, literally bought the team so that his son can drive. But he was uh, the dubbed the Mazaspin because he is such a terrible driver. Um, and uh, he no longer obviously drives uh, for Haas anymore and probably for foreseeable future. Uh, the you know uh, Mazapan was uh, uh, accused of uh, sexual 
harassment even before his uh, F1 uh, career started last year at this time, if you remember. So there's a, a huge backlash. Uh, International uh, Hockey Federation kicked out uh, both Russia and Belarus, who's uh, siding on the uh, Russia in this attack. Um, so, you know, uh, the backlash has been strong. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is one article, although if you don't mind pulling up about the uh, the hockey player, uh, hockey players who are being attacked. Um, you know, the uh, uh, Emily Kaplan, a fine hockey writer, uh, saying that the Russian NHL players are experiencing significant harassment and draft eligible players are dis- being discriminated against. Um, it's an interesting story. Uh, we're not against Russian people. Okay, we're not this so-called Russia phobia where Russians are unfairly being targeted, as we saw on Twitter earlier today. Let me remind you, you know, this is not about, you know, us Russian hating Russians. Unless, of course, if, you know, Russian athletes or anybody, uh, you know, who is a Russian in this country working or studying uh, that has clear connections with oligarchs or, you know, um, let's just say, for example, a white supremacist organization funneling money or actually coordinating uh, with both the U.S. and Russia. If they have any ties to that, then that person needs to be persecuted, have his uh, rights or citizenships, whatever, uh, revoked and being prosecuted. Now, I know it's difficult for Russian people to speak out on this because of the backlash that they will likely face in their home countries. But Unless the Russians themselves speak out on this, you know, then uh, this is something that, you know, unfortunately they're going to have to deal with or have to fend for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, one other uh, issue that has come up is the fact that uh, WNBB player Brittany Griner, who plays in Russia professionally to supplement some of her income, is being detained in Russia this after they were fined, as you see in the tweet there, uh, hashish oil was found in her luggage. Now, this happened last month before the uh, uh, war in Russia, the war in Ukraine started. But now it has become to light because the American, uh, because of diplomacy, um, it's been unfortunate. It's an unfortunate um, side uh, effect of what's happening. And she is stuck in Russia right now. Her wife has come out asking for help. Uh, the Ru- Americans are trying to get her out. But with the fact that, of course, uh, we don't know the state of Vladimir Putin, uh, the, the Russian leader there. Uh, we don't know his state of mind. He may try to try to use her as uh, as bait or uh, as some type of the, uh, of a hostage negotiation um, in in terms of trying to get what he wants out of Ukraine. Um, so it's an unfortunate side effect of what's happening, and she is still there. And, and unfortunately, I don't think um, she's going to be out anytime soon. Uh, unless we see some type of uh, emergency negotiation between U.S. and Russia. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are very familiar with her, uh, her time in WNBA, um, you know, uh, one of the legends in the uh, women's basketball. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not just her that have always played overseas when the WNBA season. Uh, oh, a lot of players over. do that. Yeah. yeah, a lot of players do that because obviously the money – playing in WNBA is peanuts and they get paid a lot more playing overseas. So this is nothing new mm-hmm. uh, for those who didn't know about this. Um, and I agree with you, you know, this is a, a worrisome situation. We didn't know about this, that she had been in the, 
uh, held uh, for three weeks now, yeah. uh, from what I read. And then uh, there have been some outrage as to why nobody didn't uh, knew about this. Was somebody hiding about this and stuff like that? So that actually, unfortunately, raises more suspicions. And obviously, uh, time is of essence. And, you know, given, you know, Russia's hostility towards uh, the Western nations that you mentioned earlier, uh, you never know uh, what will happen to her. And, uh, um, you know, we pray that, uh, you know, she gets out of there. Uh, she will be eventually released uh, safely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we certainly hope that uh, this situation and on our next show is Stephen in two weeks. We certainly hope that things will, we pray that uh, things will be better in Ukraine and uh, there'll be some type of resolution happening. And hopefully we hope that uh, Brittany Griner will be out in our next show by the time our next show happens in two weeks. Let's talk about another issue. And of course, that is going on between uh, Phil Mickelson and uh, the golfer who um, is trying to help with a breakaway golf association. Uh, from the PGA, and um, he had some things to say about Saudi Arabia, which are really, really strange. Um, for a long time, Phil was known as the lovable loser until he finally got his major, winning the PGA championship, and now he's won his uh, a, a whole slew of them since then, um, including the British Open and the and the Masters. Um, but one thing that he made that he mentioned. Uh, and as you see the tweet from Jason Sobel, is that he tried to talk about Saudi Arabia and he mentioned the murder of, of Khashoggi uh, a couple a few years ago under the Trump administration. And then he just said, well, um, but, you know, he, he then backtracked and then he said how much that, that the Saudi uh, backed golf association was going to be helpful and help golfers make money. And then he tried to uh, backtrack again. So um, it, it, it didn't really work out for him. Um, and, and the fact is, is that it, it's, it's, it's raised a lot of eyebrows. It's raised a lot of questions and he's getting a lot of backlash from other golfers from it as well, Stephen. Right. Um, although if you don't mind playing the clip of uh, Rory McIlroy uh, criticizing uh, uh, Phil Mickelson. What did you make of uh, Phil's comments earlier in the week? Um, I don't want to kick someone while he's he's down, obviously, but I thought they were naive, selfish, uh, egotistical, uh, ignorant. Um, a lot of words to describe that uh, interaction he had with Shipnuck. It was uh, just very surprising and uh, disappointing, sad, um, and I'm sure he's sitting at home, sort of rethinking his position and and where he goes from here. Yeah, and uh, in addition, um, Phil said in regards to his interview with Alan Shipnuck and about an upcoming book that's coming out, he said that um, his uh, comments were off the record, which. Really, really was strange. Alan Shipnuck really came back with that and said that that was not off the record. All of his comments were indeed on the record. So, Stephen, again, um, it's a case of you're trying to backtrack. And no matter what you're saying, it just makes it just all goes worse. Um, probably best for just Phil just to say, I screwed up. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I own my comments. Um, I promise to do better in the future. But instead, no matter what he said, it was just more foot. A, another foot in the mouth uh, disease for Phil Mickelson. It, it didn't help him at all. No, not at all. And there's a common theme that, uh, you know, can 
and I have been talking about. What we mentioned about, you know, Russia and China, the authoritative uh, countries and figures using sports to bolster themselves for a long, long time. And organizations like IOC and FIFA just went for it because uh, obviously they have the money. And this is no exception, no different with uh, Phil Mickelson. Obviously, you know, he mentioned about Jamal Khashoggi, the, the journalist who was beheaded uh, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. But yet, hey, you know, uh, as long as they can get more, a few more million dollars uh, from the uh, Saudi uh, Saudis, uh, it's all worth, worth, you know, worth it or something. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, or something similar to that type of comment, which is really, really raises eyebrows and really raises a character question of, you know, the one Phil Mickelson, because probably next to Tiger, he's probably one of the most beloved golfer in the history of the ball, history of PGA. You know, there are a lot of uh, people who love Phil Mickelson, you know, because of the odds that he had overcome. But, you know, there are some questionable things that uh, he has done off the field, obviously, with the financial troubles and stuff like that. And you have to wonder, you know, did it really cloud his judgment this badly to a point where, you know, he make this uh, off-color remarks and then, which was not off-the-record comment that mm-hmm. Alan Shipneck, the author, is saying. You know, he just literally uh, torpedoed his reputation and whatever that he has had to build up to that point. Right. You know, that there are many people who rooted for him, the sponsors, you know, swiftly, you know, uh, KPMG said, uh, you know, you're on your own now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's really, really funny when uh, how people uh, turn turn on, turn turn their backs on you. But, you know, in this case, uh, you know, it's it's a lesson in life for all of us. Um, you know, you're on your own. You know, you made you you made those comments. Those cannot be erased. And uh, Phil has to live with that for the uh, rest of his life, unfortunately. And who knows when he's going to ever play on the PGA. I don't think Phil's the kind of guy who will play on the senior tour, which is obviously not as glamorous as, uh, say, PGA. And, uh, you know, Tiger certainly ain't going to be playing in the uh, senior tour. And, you know, probably Phil doesn't seem to be the kind of person playing for peanuts compared to what he made in the uh, PGA tour. Mm -hmm. So we might have seen the last of uh, Phil for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk a, little, a couple other things in the news, NFL related. Uh, one is the fact that Peter King came out in today on NBCSports.com mentioning that Kirk Herbstreet looks like he will be the new analyst for Thursday Night Football on Amazon. Uh, Amazon has been trying to get high profile uh, announcers for its Thursday Night Football package, which will happen uh, later on this uh, this year, which will start in September, they try to get Troy Aikman, who apparently has gone to ESPN, who will be going to Monday Night Football. Um, they're also trying to get Joe Buck, but that's another story for another time. But Kirk Herbstreit, the college football announcer, looks like he will be heading over to Amazon, and um, he will continue to do work on College Game Day on ESPN and also do Saturday Night Football on ABC slash ESPN. But the fact is that uh, – um, 
Stephen, it's an interesting move that Kirk, he's been wanting to add the NFL to his portfolio and looks like he'll be doing it. And uh, who is a, a partner is going to be, we just don't know. But I think it's a big feather in the cap of Amazon to get a big name uh, for its package. Well, I know they wanted Troy Aikman and uh, Al Michaels to be paired for Thursday Night Football on Amazon. But, uh, you know, I do remember Kirk doing the game with Chris Fowler on uh, two years ago. Yes. I believe it was the Steelers and the Giants. This was, I think, the, the first uh, like a pandemic game with nobody in the stadium. And um, I enjoyed it, actually. I came away very, very impressed. They did um, a good job. They did a very good job, and it certainly helps that, uh, you know, Kirk has been uh, calling college football pretty much all his career, and uh, he knows these players, obviously, inside and out, you know, having watched them in, up and close and may have called their games many, many times. But uh, I came away very impressed. Um, I will be curious to see how the workload is going to be, you know. He does Saturday night uh, football, like you said, obviously, college game day early in the morning. Um that's uh, that's uh, you know that's probably a lot of load to uh, handle. Leave the game on a you know Friday morning, probably like two three o'clock after the game is long over. Fly to the next uh, city, you know where the uh, the college football game is. You know maybe this could be it for you know Kirk. You know doing the uh, you know the college football game day. Maybe he might just uh, do a remote uh, at a stadium, or maybe he just. Uh, don't, don't do the morning show. That's a three hours long. That's a taxing mm -hmm. one as well, early in the morning. Oh. Yeah, and usually the game day is usually at the site of Saturday Night Football anyway. So yeah. um, most, I'd say about nine times out of ten, that the ESPN usually puts it at the, the same site of where their set their primetime football game is on ABC. Um, but yeah, maybe he'll make special guest appearances or maybe just do a few segments on there and then be able to get some rest in. Um, he does. And absolutely. I do agree with Ravi. He does do a good job talking about the younger players. <laughs> Thank you for that, uh, Ravi. Um, yeah. I do think that also at the same time, um, it'll be interesting to see how he handles it and how he's, how he's liked by the NFL community. A one-off is certainly a different thing than doing every week. It'll be 15 games, uh, for, uh, Amazon. Um, they'll start in week two. Of course, NBC always has the very first season opening game and they have the Thanksgiving night game as well. So, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how Kirk does. Um, as you mentioned, Amazon. As you mentioned, Amazon wanted Troy Aikman. It looks like he's going to go to ESPN instead, doing Monday Night Football. But um, I think it's a best of both worlds for Herb Street because he gets to, as you mentioned, he knows the players that have come into the league. He knows those younger players. Um, he's called many of these guys going back to when he first started with Game Day. I think back in the early 2000s. It seems like now. Um, yeah. So, so it'll be. Uh, I I think that he's going to do a good job. I, he's uh, he does his homework. Um, he's known for uh, making a, a controversial statement or two every once in a while. But I think um, whoever his partner is going to be, whether it's going to be Al Michaels or who or, or whomever, I think he will do a very good job on Thursday Night Football. Yeah, obviously, Robbie brought up about the uh, the young players and uh, the bowl games and the uh, the number of players opting out and stuff like that, which. I have no problem to be whatsoever. So, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, the pro football players won't hold a grudge against them, you know, for that kind of stuff. And, you know, Herb Street did not play, uh, you know, uh, pro football uh, because obviously, you know, he didn't make it. But, you know, he turned himself into a very good uh, college football analyst. And uh, 
let's see how he does, you know, being a full-time, uh, you know, NFL uh, color commentator. Absolutely. That's all coming up, uh, as we mentioned, coming up uh, in September. Uh, I don't know if Amazon will be doing preseason games. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they'll probably get some practice games uh, in, so at least he can get some good chemistry with whoever the announcer is going to be, whether it's Al Michaels or uh, whomever Amazon decides to sign. Um, that's that's another thing. So um, yeah, we definitely like King, we definitely like Robbie there for his comments there. Bob. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. We like, appreciate you. all of your comments, especially as we live stream on this Monday night here on the Barroom Network. We also like to mention that uh, coming up um, right after this show, uh, Stephen, Aldo's going to be hosting a show on the Barroom Network. And what do we have coming up uh, after this show? So after this show, the uh, draft on tap is on tonight. Uh, you know, we had a, uh, a long weekend of, uh, you know, NFL uh, combine in Indianapolis. I spent mm -hmm. some time watching it, uh, you know, a uh, few workouts here and there. Obviously, a lot of Bears fans on this network may have also paid a, uh, you know, significant attention to the, uh, you know, the players working out, doing the 40, the shuttle, the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, among other things, uh, just to see, you know, who stood out the most. You know, obviously, it's still fresh in the minds of many, uh, you know, people. And uh, Aldo is bringing uh, Neil Shapczynski and uh, Danny Shimon to recap the, the the NFL combine which players stood out the most who fits the bears under the new regime uh, Ryan Pauls and Matt Eberflus so um, you know if you have time you know I strongly suggest you stick around and watch this um, uh, and then uh, have a conversation with them to ask them questions about which players stood out and who fits the most for the bears Absolutely. in the uh, uh, April draft Absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to see, of course, um, this is a bear centric network. So we are going to uh, uh, we're going to be interested to see what's going to be happening uh, coming up uh, on the um, uh, coming up next uh, in the draft. Uh, let's go to break. Uh, we have other things to talk about uh, as well on the barroom network. You're watching the double A team. I'm Ken Fang. He's Stephen Nagishi. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> Ellis Hall, since I came here, has been expanded twice. Both times after we were gone, by the way. So <laughs> we never we never got it. But I mean, it was tiny. Do, do you think that uh, Olin Krutz would politely ask you to leave the weight room because it was so crowded? <laughs> you, of I told you what Olin I told you what Olin used to say to me. I know. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> no, and, and that was at five o'clock when there's, you know, there's no players around. <laughs> oh, Gabriel, so get the f out of my weight room. <laughs> oh, and I go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I got a commercial. <laughs> So you got Kyle Hendricks, Marcus Stroman. They're the one-two for sure. Then you got Wade Miley, Adbert Alzali, a couple other guys trying to make that rotation and be the fifth starter. What do you make of the rotation as a whole? Because to me, they're a very underrated rotation that can lead to the Cubs actually having a fair amount of success. I know they got a long way to go with their starting lineup and the offense with after you know some of the moves that have been made over the last year or so. 
But man, that rotation has a chance to be really good. Bringing in Wade Miley was a solid move. Yeah, I mean, that kind of veteran presence. And Jed Hoyer talked about like, yeah, we have these young, exciting pitchers, but you can't build a pitching staff just around young, exciting guys. So you get veterans in him and then Kyle Hendricks. I think a lot hinges because we kind of know where those top three in the rotation are going to be from year to year, where the Cubs ceiling really hinges is at the bottom of that rotation and which of those young guys can really click and really grow. I mean, we've seen Alzali grow from year to year, but he still is working on new pitches and, and really trying to reach that ceiling, which I don't think we quite know where that's going to be yet. You know, I really appreciate a good baseline and that uh, the cross <laughs> in, the, in the last show. So uh, you saw that uh, in the promo for the last one. So I really appreciate a very, very good baseline. Uh, much appreciated. <laughs> uh, Ken Fang along with Stephen Nagishi here on the double A team. Stephen, let's bring in our first guest tonight. All right. Uh, so we're going to bring Chris uh, hopefully at the top of the hour. So we are very pleased to have. Uh, a gentleman working at the Athletic, and he used to work for the ESPN, and he is also a member of uh, Asian American Journalist Association. Uh, he is Mark Kim, uh, based out of uh, West Coast. Mark, uh, thanks for joining us on uh, short notice. Thank you so much. Happy to hear be here, guys. How are you doing? Good, good. Glad to have you on. Absolutely. So, Mark, uh, tell us about your uh, uh, current uh, situation working with The Athletic and uh, how did you get your start and how did you end up uh, with The Athletic? Yeah. So as of right now, I'm currently the social engagement manager over there. Um, so basically to, to kind of start things off is that The Athletic's social team, um, full social operation kind of got a kickstart last year as opposed to they're building out their newsroom and their primary other like editorial operation function, but they didn't really focus on social until last year. So I made the jump from ESPN over there. And basically what I do um, here at The Athletic uh, when it comes to social media wise is being able to set strategy and be able to help get a plan in place in terms of how do you cover social media, like how do you cover sports on social media as The Athletic? That's kind of at least like, especially when it comes to the live window, what I've been tasked with mostly I also do a lot of project management, working on a couple uh, fun different operations within the company, such as like the the start of the TikTok uh, account over here um, and being able to grow that a little bit more. And then also uh, being able to work with younger people in the feed. So uh, that's at least what I'm kind of doing that right now. So basically doing a lot of social media strategy that regard. And that's kind of what I was doing at ESPN, except I was more on the, the feed side. So I like to say that I spent around like three years in the trenches. I used to work. Uh, the late nights covering games and all, but uh, especially when you start out young and hungry in this industry, you got to cut your teeth in the the worst hours, the work, like working those weekends, working those holidays, you know what it's like, right? Absolutely. Um, we're speaking with Mark Kim of The Athletic, part of their social media strategy. And Mark, of course, uh, when you, when you, when you were 
we, we all talk about media companies 10 years ago. We didn't think about social media strategies, but now it's it's in the forefront. You just got to be on Snap. You have to be on TikTok. You got to be on Twitter. You got to be on Facebook. You got to also look for anything that new that's uh, and anything new that's that's coming along. So how is you uh, as, as part of the athletic strategy thinking about um, all these uh, platforms where the athletic can reach? Well, a lot of it, I think when it comes to working in sports social, you kind of need to have an understanding of not just, you know, the sports itself, because obviously like the, the, uh, when it comes to like covering, you know, sports online, you need to know everything, a little bit of everything uh, to be able to do the job right. But it's not really just that it's, you know, no understanding um, breakthroughs in like other platforms, tech uh, breakthroughs in sport, like in sports media itself too. Um, so I think that just having a good all around knowledge uh, really contributes to a successful so- social operation. And when it comes to finding new networks, a lot of it's like, okay, what's working, what's not. Um, a lot of like, what, like trying to figure things out in the moment, come up with the, a well thought out plan. And a lot of it's just like, if you're going to approach a new platform, a lot of it's just having like intention to go with it. I would say more than anything is like, as long as it's thought out. And ultimately I think at the end of the day, like if you know, you've created something that it's going to work out really well. Um, at the end of the day, good content always went out, whether it may not be necessarily in viewership numbers or engagement numbers necessarily, but like the audience will definitely appreciate um, you putting your best foot forward. If ultimately that's kind of what you bring to the table there. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing too, also uh, that's been important, of course, as you mentioned, of course, is trying to find those platforms that work. What is working mostly uh, for the athletic as, as you're a part of that strategy? Well, I think especially when it comes to covering the live sports window, I think that Twitter, obviously, uh, that's the one that's been getting the most attention. I think it, it's been around for a long time. And I think especially considering the amount of uh, work that The Athletic puts out, both like when it comes to putting out long-form stories and being able to cover stuff in the live window and being able to, like, different things that get turned in during that, that time, I think Twitter definitely works the best where it's like, okay, there's an individual moment that kind of comes up here. You know, for example, like Victor Oladipo earlier today checked in for the first time in 11 months back from injury. But um, like, what's the story behind that? Like his comeback, his fit with the team. And I think that that's ultimately what the athletic provides uh, more than anything is the why when it comes to every single sports story. And which is why I think that Twitter works so well, where it's like you can have a moment that comes up. And then at the same time, you can take your audience to the next level and say like, hey, I remember this piece I was reading here a little bit earlier or like, hey, this editor flagged me this feature that came out like two days ago. Let's put this story all together and give people the full picture. And I think that on Twitter, it's, it's especially easy, especially considering the volume, the activity from our writers uh, to really make that work. And then that and then obviously, I think when it comes to the the TikTok, uh, the, when it comes to strategy on that platform, I, th- I think obviously there may be a little less of the newsroom involved, but like the way that they're uh, – the growth algorithm kind of works um, the audio, like the chance to be able to reach out to a new audience. Um, I think that it, w- it won't be very long before TikTok ends up uh, catching in terms of success. But ultimately I think that uh, Twitter as of right now is probably the, the go-to platform. What's been the, the biggest difference between uh, the athletic, which is somewhat of a newer, um, you know, uh, operation compared to say ESPN from your time and, What's been the you know the your proudest uh, accomplishment say at the uh, athletic uh, so far? So I think the difference between ESPN and the athletic is ultimately your reach, where it's like 
I, I put it a lot this way where this time, like when I went to the athletic, I stopped being David, like I stopped being Goliath and ended up becoming David uh, to a certain extent where it's like when you're ESPN, it's like everyone knows who you are. If you make something that's good, everyone's going to see it because it's ESPN and you have that platform. Um, it's, it's like ESPN and Bleacher Report are usually the two biggest uh, names when it comes to the sports social space. So basically whatever you make, whenever your best idea is, people are going to see that more. But when it comes to working at the athletic and something that I'm really proud of this team and in general, just being able to accomplish is that, you know, obviously the accounts have existed uh, for a little bit, um, but ultimately being able to build a strategy from the ground up, being able to recruit with a smaller team where I went from a team from like 30 plus to like, there's at least like five or six of us um, at the moment over at the, the athletic. And I, I'm really op- like proud that we have a full, day side, night side operation, working with editorial, like working at the newsroom, working on like developing breaking news, working on the live window, all of that with the 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 size of the, of the team that we have and including, you know, the quality of the work that we end up putting out too. So all that considered and ultimately it's like, we're not going to put up and like compete with ESPN or Bleach Report uh, at this current moment, you know, hopefully sometime soon uh, it ends up becoming the case. But at the very least, you know, just being able to have a full-on operation and be able to put out the quality work that we do for a much smaller team with a smaller platform, I think has been uh, the one of the things I've been most proud to see from the, the athletics so far uh, with its uh, social operation. One thing that in the early days of tying in um, media, big media with social media was to shovelware, put those links out there, uh, try mm-hmm. to get everything in. But now it's about the content and putting out original stuff. So what is some of the stuff that the athletic is trying to think about to get that, to make sure you get those clicks? So I think when it, when it comes to the newsroom product, I, the writers really put in a lot of the work for us where it's like, they spend a lot of time with editors. They reaching out to sources, doing interviews, you know, putting together these fantastic stories. And ultimately when it comes to the hands of the team that I work on, the audience team, uh, which en- encompasses both programming and social, it's really, well, how do we like bring out the most potential and like the story that we're given here? And I think at, when it comes to that, it really comes down to like, what are additional elements we can do to help get people's attention as opposed to, you know, just like, let's just put a link share in here and just kind of like, you know, just let it ride, give them the headline. I don't necessarily want our feeds to become like RSS feed necessarily, I, so the thing that I'm definitely proud of when it comes to bringing those two worlds together is being able to build an extra package where it's like, you know, even like being able to translate some of these stories from being largely text-based to more visual-based. So it's like being able to take a, like a thousand word feature and make it a whole Instagram carousel. I think that, you know, being able to like translate that storytelling has been a point of pride uh, for myself and the rest of the team when it comes to uh, bringing that all together. Um, I, the, that kind of answered the question, right? I want to make sure I wasn't too far off the point there. No, not at all. No, you perfect. Perfect. So the athletic was actually, uh, was rumored to be on sale. You know, the New York times were, you know, uh, were looking to purchase at 500 million or something like that. And, uh, um, when, when you hear something like that, what goes through your mind? Are you worried about like a larger media, you know, taking over, you know, uh, ath- athletic and maybe completely changing the, uh, you know, the, uh, the structure and the, uh, the atmosphere uh, and the environment that, that you guys have built up on? 
I, I will, I, first off, I want to preface this by saying that I'm speaking for myself and not the rest of my colleagues here. Uh, but ultimately, at least to me, I think the most important thing was whoever the, whoever ended up buying the athletic, I like at the very least, like as long as they continue to let the athletic continue to do its thing and to continue to put out the good work that, it, that we do on a regular basis and continuing to let the social team kind of learn and grow on that end. Ultimately, I, I think that being able to keep the newsroom as it kind of is for the most part, I think was at least to me like a priority when it came to whoever the potential buyer was. So a lot of it, when the rumors started coming up, it was like, I'd see, you know, names here and there. And a lot of it was me thinking about fit. And when, you know, the New York times um, ended up signing on uh, at least like from an outside perspective, it kind of made sense in the way that they kind of valued the journalism um, and in the, in the newsroom in general, and in, in the way that they're, they're, their kind of ethics kind of work. Um, I want to make sure I'm not saying too much, at least on uh, I, on that end, but ultimately so far it's been uh, the adjustment from the New York times uh, purchase uh, from before it's been seamless so far. So um, ultimately I'm pretty glad with uh, the move that's been made and only time will tell from here. Mm-hmm. One thing that ESPN was, was able to do, especially when you were there. And uh, I, I know what even probably before you were there was got to do a lot of experimentation, see what works see what didn't work. There was sports center on Snapchat. Uh, Katie Nolan was there. So uh, interesting to see um, h- how is that approach that you have gone from ESPN and taking and what, you know, and taking that to the athletic. So I wouldn't be here, obviously, if it wasn't for the, the jump uh, that I made from ESPN and the years that I spent over there. And I, I really appreciate the team as much and especially considering my background a little bit i'm not sure if i talked about this up, up top but like i started off as a broadcast journalist actually i wanted to do the local tv route just like everyone else and eventually uh you know i made the change to social media and espn took that chance on me um so really a lot of you know a lot of the knowledge i have about the industry sports social in that regard like really comes from uh my time that i spent over there uh, at espn but ultimately i think the biggest thing you kind of took away, like I kind of took away from that experience is, you know, uh, the value of brand identity. I, you know, the way that people see the way your accounts look, you know, no matter the amount of uh, like on the amount of followers you engage when you get regularly, it's obviously different based off the platform that people have. But like, ultimately, when you look at, um, I guess the big picture of like what your account stands for, is it something that, is it a product that people can kind of be, uh, uh, like proud of. And I think that it kind of starts, you know, it starts from the, like the makeup of the team when it comes to diversity, making sure that you have a good amount and a good variety of uh, people behind the scenes. Then it comes to like the minds that you end up hiring. It's like, are these people that um, understand, you know, the way that like I, at the very least, like the sports media landscape kind of works out. Um, do they un- like have a deep understanding of their sport? And I think that we've hit a lot of those, uh, markers right on the head here so far and i've been really proud of um as mentioned like being able to take that thought and like being able to build upon it at the athletic where i have a lot more freedom to kind of express my thoughts on that end where it's like on at least on the espn and it's i started off like at entry level and activating uh fees and stuff and being able to program on that end but ultimately now it's because i'm more of in a strategy role i get to think about again like taking the thoughts i kind of had uh, in my mind, working over the years at ESPN and being able to carry them forward and now put them into action at a place that has a, like a lot of like great things to kind of set you up to be successful on social where it's like the newsrooms very well. 
you have good support from um, the headquarters team. You have a good amount of people on the programming end that are that make that work closely in line with us. The newsroom has been good when it comes to communication. So it really just you know all things considered, I've really had the I've really been happy to have the opportunity to kind of like build and grow uh, the things here at the Athletic, and it's largely because of what I've been able to take away um, at ESPN as well. So there we have a question of your question, yep. uh, Mark. How are your days in college? Did you work? Uh, did you work? Uh, did you work? Uh, I'm trying to figure this out. Did you did did you work with writing and practicing? How did that help you in your career? Um, on my end, so I actually I as mentioned I as I end up graduating with a career and a degree in the broadcast journalism, and I want to be like a local sports anchor, working the the MMJ grind. Um, and that's a lot of what I did throughout the years. But actually on the side, it was like I wasn't able to get on, on screen like immediately. You know, that's the way it kind of works um, whenever you start off. It's like you got to do some work on the sidelines, do social media. And that's at least kind of where I got my start is I want to be eventually be on air and like being able to like lead game coverage, um, even as young as like since I was a freshman. So ultimately, I decided to hustle a lot more on social media and and be on top of that stuff, being able to provide as good of um, like coverage when it comes to like high school sports or like local community college sports as much as I can um, on that level. And ultimately people seeing the the quality of work that came out and um, even like throughout the years, it was like, oh, I kind of have a thing for the social media thing. Um, so even though it wasn't necessarily my primary concern, it was always like, what else can I do for social um, and being able to elevate that sort of product um, when it comes to packaging on like for the TV product, for the web product, and ultimately being able to have a full on social rollout. And eventually at a certain point, it was like, um, I developed a decent amount of following based off of, you know, the work that I did. Why don't I spend a little bit more time doing social media? So it was even outside of the hours at the station, I was, you know, just being involved online in the communities that are out there, um, interacting with people, networking to a certain degree, but I think a lot of the networking was kind of natural where it's like, it's just people you kind of talk to. Um, so at least for me, when it comes to the, the practicing on that end, like I, you know, you're not good. Like when it comes to when you know what you want to do and being able to at the very least, like get reps behind it, I encourage that hundred um, percent. I think that ultimately writing is a skill. Like, even though I wasn't necessarily and technically a writer by trade, even though, you know, I might've done some stuff in high school. That's like, but that wasn't necessarily my primary focus in, in college, but at the same time, I think that writing overall will over like in any form, like whether it is journalistically, whether it is, you know, you're writing short stories or poems and stuff, also like being able to articulate like a point in written form, you know, a lot of that stuff will translate over to what you do. And it's not like I just, you know, stopped writing whenever I ended up at ESPN or at the athletic I may not be writing like full on articles, but a lot of those, those traits of storytelling kind of carry over. Um, so even if it's like you start off as a writer um, and you eventually want to make the, the switch to social media, there's a lot that you can adapt from that world over to what you wind up wanting to do. And eventually you kind of develop a certain specialty where it's like I had a broadcast degree when I uh, first like made the jump to social media and ended up at ESPN. So a lot of it's like, OK, I can do a little bit more video than most people can. I understand kind of how that framing works. And I think that it's kind of similar when it comes to on the writing end, end of things where it's like the, the, the ability to tell a story doesn't change from one area to another. 
it may have different forms, but ultimately good storytelling is good storytelling and being able to take that with you uh, from one specialty field to another, I think is really important. So uh, Ravi, hopefully I answered your question there and let me know if you have, uh, if you want to talk further, just let me know and I'll definitely give you as much advice as I can give uh, from my perspective. And we thank Ravi for that question. Of course, we always welcome viewer questions. So feel free to comment below in the comments below here on our YouTube channel uh, on the Barroom Network. Uh, so again, thank you for that, uh, uh, for Ravi. And uh, um, Stephen, go ahead. Yeah, uh, once again, thank you for uh, Ravi for asking a great question. Obviously, um, working in the industry, uh, you know, as an Asian American uh, Pacific Islander in a time like this, uh, you know, with the, you know, with the racism that has always been there, as well as the, um, you know, the lack of uh, diversity. Um, you're also a member of AAJA and the Sports Task Force. Um, what can you tell us about your involvement in the uh, AAJA, and uh, what are the what are the things that uh, the issues that you guys uh, run into that you're trying to change? So. Um, when it comes to my involvement in AJA, uh, I actually, when I made the jump from broadcast to social, they were the first place to get, they were the first area, uh, like group of people that were able to get my foot in the door uh, when it comes to reaching out to recruiters and professional networks and stuff. And ultimately, I would say that I wouldn't be at ESPN if it wasn't for the people at AJA that, that kind of helped me there. Um, being able to believe in my ability, even though I came out as a broadcast student, but it's like, oh, he wants to do social media. Uh, they had faith in the ability that I could do the job and help set me up to where I am now. And I owe a lot of, you know, my career to uh, the organization. And ultimately um, they just, they, they want to see more Asian representation um, in the newsrooms across the country, whether it is, you know, you're working as a writer, whether you were working as a producer or if you're on the video side of things, if you're on the social media side of things, just, they want to see more Asians in sports. And you know, that's an, I, I think that's something that we can all agree on as a positive in this industry, just having more representation across the board. So, um, you know, ultimately, that's kind of what we're trying to do and being and not just that, but also being able to create more opportunities for the next generation, um, whether it is uh, being able to open up more scholarships, uh, which have helped a lot of very prominent journalists uh, early in their career. So uh, that's at the very least kind of um, what the organization has been all about so far. Mm -hmm. And as, as you mentioned, Mark, uh, representation, always very important, uh, very important to all of us. Uh, and that's why we started this show, the AA team, in talking about Asian issues, especially uh, in, the, uh, in sports and getting more, more uh, people who look like us in sports. Because it, it's, it's just not just people who are, are, are white. It's not just people who are black. It's not just people who are Hispanic. But it's also trying to get more and more people into this industry. And Mark, I think it's a great job that uh, fantastic that you're part and, and doing a uh, part of, of the athletic and getting more people who look like us into newsrooms. Yeah. And that's kind of at least like what, as I entered the second stage of my career, which is kind of weird to talk about because I feel a lot younger than that. And at least to me, that's kind of at least kind of been my next goal is to be able to, you know, help mentor the people that are up and coming from schools, people that are early stage in their careers where it's like, especially in an industry like social media, it's so young. And that's kind of like the, the, the biggest thing that kind of sticks out to me where it's like pre like 2016, like social, like do, like the full operation of do, like having a social team and dedicating time and resources to that stuff wasn't necessarily 
um, as prevalent um, in the past. There may be companies that have done it before, but um, at least at, from my experience, I hadn't really seen a lot of companies really invest in social in that way. Um, so a lot of people are like starting to come up like and starting to see a lot of these issues that come uh, when it comes to early stages of career and all that. So at the very least, when it comes to the sports social community, I definitely want to be involved. But I and being able to give my experiences, especially being at a company like ESPN and going through again, as I mentioned, like the 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 weekends and the late nights that I have in the past. And I think especially when it comes to social media, there's very much um, a problem when it comes to like like feed fatigue where it's like you are online a little bit too much when it comes to the job. And it, it, it almost is kind of a, it's a balancing that you kind of got to strike. So at the very least, like when it comes to something that I want to be able to do is being able to help people out with more like work-life balance on that. end is kind of an example uh, when it comes to something that I, when I'm talking with young journalists that I talk about um, and making sure that people get the right amount of mental health balance to go with uh, being able to chase their dreams. Um, but ultimately that it doesn't just stop like, like that's advice I give to anyone I kind of talk to, whether it is a writer, whether it is someone that wants to do more stuff on camera. Um, a lot of these lessons can be like molded and translated no matter, you know, whether I'm talking to a social media specialist or a coordinator, or again, if I'm talking to someone that wants to be a beat writer for a team, I think, you know, the grind may be, be a little bit different, but ultimately I think a lot of the wisdom um, can be passed forward and passed around. And at the very least, that's what I want to contribute um, and hopefully have a positive contribution to uh, the next generation that kind of comes up. I understand you're from uh, Naperville uh, outside of Chicago. Tell us about, uh, you know, you grew up in Naperville. What was it like for you? And uh, what do you miss the most about the Chicago area, whether it's sports, food, or whatever it is that you remember? <laughs> Let me tell you, it's definitely the food because it isn't the sports because uh, the, 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 the thing I didn't tell you all, uh, in the backstage was that even though I grew up in Naperville, I was born like I was raised in Metro Detroit first. So a lot of my roots ah, yeah. were Detroit based. Uh, but again, it brings out the very fun conundrum of, oh, he was a Detroit fan living in Chicago. <laughs> and I got to see like the like living through that and like the the Blackhawks uh their rise uh in like the the late 20 like 2000s early 2010s uh, the Chicago Bulls of Derrick Rose like even though I was a uh Detroit fan by trade it was like I would still listen to ESPN 1000 and all the shows that they have talking about the Bears and the Bulls and the Blackhawks and all that because ultimately at least to me it's kind of like you got to know your enemy more than you know like to keep your enemy a lot closer so it's like if i'm talking chicago bulls and the pistons and so on i gotta know what like what the talking points of the bulls are i can't go in there yeah. just like talking one-sided so uh no i have a lot of appreciation for the chicago uh, media landscape out there uh but ultimately you know my passion for journalism wouldn't have been brought up if it wasn't for the time i spent over there where it's like i started off taking like a high school journalism class and i was like okay I kind of like what the, where this is going here. Let me explore it a lot deeper. So it's like I joined the the student the the student newspaper out there, um, did the the TV station out there too, trying to figure out what my interests are. Um, so I think when it comes to from a career's perspective, that's where it kind of all started. Um, so that's like if I were to pay my respects, it's a lot uh, to that more than anything. And developing uh, the passion that I have that I and that I carry to this day for not just sports, but again like the sports. Uh, media industry as well. 
And Chicago, of course, is a hotbed for sports media and sports radio. And, of course, uh, we won't talk about what's going on with the Detroit uh, the Detroit sports scenes for you, Mark. I know that it can be very hurtful. Stephen has lived in Detroit uh, up until just recently, so he knows exactly what – he can feel your pain on that one. So, <laughs> Where in Detroit did you live, uh, Ken? Uh, Mark? I lived in, like, Metro Detroit, so it was a little bit uh, outside the city and more in the, suburb, the, the suburbs area. Um, so to, to kind of give you, if you want like a sports, like, uh, like I lived in South to put this on a period of time, actually. Yeah. Uh, so I was about like 15 minutes away from Auburn Hills, which, which is where the Pistons used to play. Yes. And yes. the Pistons are my favorite team to this day and always will be. <laughs> so, uh, as a kid growing up, being able to go to the, those games and have it so close was awesome. But, you know. I haven't been to Little Caesars Arena yet, but one day that's going to be on the bucket list to, to make it out there for a game. Well, Mark Kim, uh, from The Athletic, uh, head of their social media strategy, um, and also a member of the Asian American Journalist Association, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And uh, we hope to have you on again and uh, talk about more about what's going on with The Athletic. Thank you so much. Mark, Love thank talking you so to you all. Thanks have so a good much. show, guys. Thank, thank you. you. And we'll continue with the AA team right after this message. Really understanding the difference between empowerment and agency versus objectification. And the difference is always who has the power. If I choose that I feel my best and, and I look my best and I'm the most confident in a certain outfit, then I am empowering myself to make that choice and to tell you that I'm, I, I'll show you who I am and let you know who I am. You can't make those decisions based off what I'm wearing. But if it's objectification because the producers or directors or whoever runs a show is saying you have to wear a dress every show and high heels have to be this high, and you have to dye your hair blonde, it's a very different thing, right? So right. I do think we have to remember that because a lot of people will look at women who are stepping into their own sexuality and, and accuse them of not being also allowed to talk about harassment and other things. They're very different things. It's about choice and power. I think people need to realize too, like I say this with very, I'm very cautious I say this, but it's like, you don't know the man. You don't know if he's going through a divorce. You don't know what, like what's going on. So I'd rather try to understand the situation better than get trigger happy, jump the gun. Cause if we're going to be honest, I could have easily went up there, knocked him out and then mm -hmm. just call the cops and go like, Hey, problem solved. But then is that really a problem solved? You know, that's just, that's a temporary fix. Yeah, I knock him out, but who's to say he doesn't wake up and do that again later and become more violent? And you just totally, you know, ruin this guy's livelihood over a dumb mistake. And again, I always tell you, I'm like, look, I'm no one to judge him. I've made mistakes. You know, I'm not a perfect man. So the best that I could do is just make sure everyone gets home that night. What happens the day after tomorrow? I don't know. That that was it at that current moment. That's what I was kind of like. We thank Mark Kim of The Athletic for joining us here on the AA team. Great stuff. And, and, and Stephen, you're doing you're, you're really hitting it out of the park getting our guest uh, for this show. Um, <laughs> talking about uh, getting – and that's exactly why we have this show, uh, trying to talk about Asian representation in sports. 
uh, I remember when I was trying to get into sports broadcasting, um, people said, well, you're too Asian. You're too ethnic. You can't really do this. Uh, we want to have Joe Smith. Your name is too, your name is too ethnic. We're going to change it to Ken Smith. Um, <laughs> and I, I, resi- I, and I, I fought all that. Uh, and, and, and I'm glad that, uh, I was able to do that because, uh, you know, I, 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 I was known as Ken Fang and I didn't change my name. So um, I'm glad to see people that that, let, that we're getting in on the on this show. And that's what it's all about, Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the um, it's not just people who are on television, but, uh, you know, people like Mark who are making marks, uh, no pun intended there, uh, uh, you know, behind the scenes, you know, with The Athletic, um, you know, which a lot of us subscribe to you know, for their content and, you know, Mark playing a big role in their, uh, you know, digital, the digital side, you know, whether it's the, uh, the tech doc or, you know, the digital layout format, as well as the, uh, you know, uh, as well as the, uh, the Twitter feed, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a huge, huge uh, task for somebody like him to uh, oversee everything because, uh, you know, athletic has had, uh, has had, uh, you know, pretty good success so far. And, uh, it's uh, nice to see that uh, Mark is, uh, you know, doing his part, and uh, hopefully, he will he will continue to have a great success with the uh, uh, athletic there. Absolutely, and uh, a person now. Let's let's change gears a little bit. Let's bring in our um, next guest. Uh, his name is Chris Herring. He is our NBA writer for Sports Illustrated. He has a new book that is out. It is a New York Times bestseller. It's called Blood in the Garden. And a look at the 1990s New York Knicks, a subject that I'm very, very familiar with, having been a New York Knicks fan in the 1990s and uh, going up against those Chicago Bulls. Of course, we are a Chicago Bull. We are a Chicago-centric network here at the Barroom Network, so we'll talk about that. And many of you who uh, may may remember those great rivalry between the Knicks and the uh, and the Bulls, let's talk with Chris Herring uh, uh, of Sports Illustrated. Chris, thanks for joining us tonight, and. Uh, Boy, as a Knicks fan, um, I, I can I can go on and on forever about Patrick Ewing and 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 the, the X Man and and all those great years uh, in the Garden and how much those Nick uh, those uh, the MSG was rocking the 1990s. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank it's you. No problem at all, guys. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. Uh, let's talk about the book. Um, how surprised were you to see your see your book in the top ten in nonfiction on the New York Times bestseller list? Um, if you'd asked me a year or two years ago, I would have been completely just thrown off by it. Um, as we started to get toward the very end of the process, though, it, I started to get the impression that I had a very real chance to not only make the list, but maybe, you know, not just barely make it, but make it maybe into the top 10. So, um, still, even if you're hoping for it or you think it might be a possibility, it's pretty surreal to actually see it, particularly as a first time author, um, but the only way I can kind of describe my feeling about it is just extreme gratitude, extremely grateful for, for so many people rushing to buy it. You know, um, the book ended up, <laughs> the, the, the book ended up, um, that's our producer up, Aldo Gandia, by I, the way. So. I saw, I saw, and I, Hey, I can't blame him. A lot of Chicagoans feel I'm a, I'm a Chicagoan myself. So I understand a lot of people feeling that way. Um, but you know, it, it the book came out early at Barnes and Noble and a number of other stores. They got copies of the book early. They just started selling it as soon as they had it on the shelves, and um, people were 
like frustrated that they had to wait till January 18th from Amazon. So they were running to their stores, their local stores to get early copies of it, or they started to order it through alternate means to try to get a copy a few days earlier. And that was when I realized like this has a real chance uh, to, to do really well sales wise. And so, like I said, I'm just grateful because there are so many people that make a point of telling me they've got three copies of it now because they had one that they ordered as a pre-order and then they got one at the store early and then, you know, a family member didn't realize that they already had it. So they got that copy too from a family member for a birthday or for, you know, for Valentine's day or what have you. So it's just a huge blessing and I'm really grateful. I just ordered my copy. Sorry, Ken. I just ordered my copy and still waiting for the, uh, it's arrival. So I'm really, really Thank looking you. forward to dive deep, uh, you know, into the, uh, the book itself. When you pick a topic to write a book of this magnitude, can you give us an idea what goes through, you know, the the process of picking a topic? Uh, obviously, it's not just you. You know, you have to work with a publisher, and in your case, the Simon and Schuster, you know, which is a you know big publisher, and the role that they play in uh, you know putting together a, a book that you wrote. Sure. Um, there's a couple things you, you you focus on. First of all, do you have the desire to write about whatever the subject is. Are you interested enough in it personally to spend a year and a half, two years, you know, maybe if you're a very fast writer, one year to, to work on something like this, to go and find all the people that are relevant to the story. Uh, low on the list, as far as who you would want to speak to the, the biggest subjects, the Ewings, the Riley's, the Starks's. Um, do you want to do that for two years? Do you want to research it? Do you want to, actually interview these people, transcribe, you know, the 600 some hours of interviews that I did. Um, do you want to actually try to then take all that information, figure out who's telling the truth, figure out a way to kind of take an unbiased stance on it? Or some people write in a different style with a more biased stance. Do you want to do all that and then try to structure it into a book that people are going to read? Because if you don't love it and you're not interested in it, you don't really think it's that fascinating. Why on earth is anybody that's reading your book going to think that? Um, if you don't think that is the author. So there's that. Do you have a big enough base of people that you're writing to or writing for that are going to care about the subject deeply enough? And some people don't find themselves guided by that or aren't focused on that that much. You know, hats off to people like that. It's a little bit difficult to have that train of thought as a first-time author because if you want to write another book after that, and as you mentioned, Simon & Schuster is a major publisher, they're in the business for business reasons. They're trying to sell books. So if you have a first book that is really interesting, but not necessarily about a subject matter that's going to draw a lot of people to buy the book, you might not be able to easily get a second book deal if the book doesn't sell very well. So you want to have a really big, passionate group of people that really care about the subject matter. So I knew I had that with this, um, with it being a New York team, but also a team that... <laughs> you know, similar to what we just saw a moment ago, a lot of people that are going to boo them or dislike them. And so that's helpful from that standpoint <laughs> as well. Um, you want to have, I mean, if people kind of hate the team, that works to your advantage to some extent. You want to have people that are passionate. You want to have people that that love the team as well uh, and hate them. So there's that part of it. Um, you know, so I would say those are probably the two major things. Um, you also want to have a sense of, whether or not you feel like you could actually get to the people that matter and put something out there about the story that hasn't been said. 
So if you asked me if I'd wanted to write a book about the Bulls from the 90s, uh, probably not. Or, or if I was going to, I would probably have to take a long, hard look at all the other books that are out there about them because it would be more of a question of hasn't a lot already been written about them before? And if there has, like, what are you going to add to the conversation that nobody knows? And I think that was one area that made maybe the 90s Knicks pretty ripe to be written about because they were really, really interesting and really, really important during those years. But they weren't nearly as important as the Bulls who won all those titles. And because of that, nobody had really rushed to write a book about them. There wasn't one written about them, uh, or at least not by a major publisher, by a major author. And so I think that kind of left a lot of room to tell a lot of stories that had never been out there that you know there was no social media back then there have been no major documentaries done on them um and frankly when the last dance came out and everybody was so nostalgic about that knicks fans were nostalgic too and uh you know granted i started working on the book before that but i think it you know it speaks to the fact that when there's a lot to be said about something that hasn't been out there already um about a team that everybody paid attention to it leaves a runway to kind of have something take off like this book did i think chris um we can start where, you know, like going from Pat Riley to John Starks to Patrick Ewing, who had been there uh, and just getting into his prime. Um, you can also talk about uh, some of the other characters uh, on that team. Um, they, they were, in a sense, the NBA version of the New York Mets. There were so many different personalities on that team, so many different people on that team, uh, so different uh, um we, and people, and Knicks fans thought when Pat Riley was coming over, it was going to be Showtime East. But instead, he brought a different type of basketball to the New York Knicks. Um, talk about that a little for just a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think people were were misguided. And I understand how, because, you know, it kind of makes sense. You watch Pat Riley coach the Lakers um, with Magic Johnson and James Worthy and all these, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Cooper you're assuming that the Knicks are going to take on that style because that's what he did with the Lakers. Maybe you do, but then you look at the roster and you realize very quickly, it would be great to take Steve Kerr from the Warriors and then, you know, plop him down with today's Rockets. But just because he goes over there doesn't mean that anybody becomes Steph Curry. And it was kind of the same thing with the, with the Knicks uh, when Pat Riley got there is that they, they were a team that had front court players more so than backcourt ones. So they weren't really skilled. They weren't really fast. Um, they were a defense of how they played and Pat Riley knew that and decided to try to play into that. So instead of trying to make them Lakers East, he instead looked at what had worked most recently against Jordan and, and the East. And he basically said, you know, the Pistons strategy, the, the Jordan rules, Pistons, the bad boys, Pistons were maybe the closest thing to really being able to have an impact in the East. They had won two titles before Michael really came and took it away from them. And Riley basically determined that the Pistons strategy still could work. It was just the Pistons were too old and the Knicks were younger than that. And he basically figured, okay, you know, the Pistons have a little bit more offense than we do, but our best shot of knocking off Michael and the Bulls is to play a really physical, um, dominating, kind of domineering sort of style of defense intimidating style of defense and they tried to ride that as far as they could and almost won him a championship but they even hired pat's uh top assistant during this year pat riley's top assistant was a guy that had been a coach with pistons teams and assistant 
with those Pistons teams. So it was very targeted kind of what they were doing. And you know, they didn't really have any shame about it in terms of that being the way they played. Very true. <laughs> In the course of writing a book of this magnitude, you know, you have this some sort of a conceived notion about, you know, these uh, necks maybe not as bad as dirty as the, uh, you know, the Pistons, the bad boy Pistons. You know, um, what was the, the biggest surprise, you know, that you've uncovered, when, you know, during the research and interviewing these uh, former necks that you thought, wow, I didn't realize that, uh, uh, you know, he he was such a you know a different player off the court or on the court. Um, for me, I think it, it probably if I'm if I'm drilling it down to one person, maybe two, but I would say one. Pat Riley is someone that I I knew was was a little bit of a maniac off the court, um, <laughs> away from the court. Oh, true. I didn't realize he was this maniacal away from the court, near the court, on the court, in the locker room. Uh, it was pretty jarring to hear about some of the stuff that, frankly, you know, he was a great coach. Nobody takes that away from him. You can't do that. Um, but he, you know, I, I think that he, there's certain stuff that he did back then that wouldn't be allowed today, that teams wouldn't allow, they wouldn't sign off on, no matter how many championships he'd won as a coach, because he had won four of them as the head coach of the Lakers before he came to New York. Um, you couldn't take the team psychologist away from the players, you know, in an in a NBA that claims to care about mental health now. Mm -hmm. um, you probably, if it got out, you know, in today's social media era, that you were showing videos of Rams headbutting each other and car crashes right before you send your players out to play against the team um, as a way of telling your team to play violently, that might not fly today. Um, yeah. If you had a player that was inactive or was not going to play and was in a suit um, walking into the locker room to prepare to go out to the court while the rest of your team is sitting down listening to the game plan and watching you write on a blackboard, X's and O's stuff, you could not then turn to that player in the suit and say, why the hell are you wearing that suit? If I needed you to give me one minute tonight to win a championship, couldn't I expect you to play that one minute if it would result in us winning the whole thing? And then the player saying, yes, of course, I could play one minute if I had to. And then Riley saying, then what the hell are you doing in that suit? Um, as a way of intimidating him into playing the game uh, when he's not physically able to. There, there was just a lot of stuff that was was kind of a – there was a toxicity to some of it. I mean, it was just kind of the way stuff was back then as far as just a really hyper-masculine team, a really hyper-masculine coach. And I think you had a, a player that did not fit all those things in Charles Smith who Riley did not really understand his purpose and did not understand his role and tried to make him fit something that he wasn't. Um, and, you know, it, it, I won't say it ruined Charles Smith. I think his knees ruined what he could have been as a player and what he had been as a player. But Pat Riley psychologically did not do him any favors either. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's something that I don't think reflects very well on him all these years later, knowing that Charles Smith had chronic knee problems. Um, and I don't know that Pat you know, would handle it the same way. Maybe he would have, but I think he was kind of an over the line, over the edge sort of guy. And I think frankly, it was part of the reason that he had to move on. Uh, also money, obviously, you know, what, what Miami was putting out there for him is, you know, in the, in the form of an ownership stake and everything else. But um, he was just so over the edge all the time. And I, I just, I don't think that you see much of that in today's NBA because um, it wears guys down. It wears the people that, that have that mentality down the coaches too.
Absolutely. I mean, you talk about Charles Smith, and of course, as, as a Knicks fan, I'm, I'm still bitter about the Charles Smith being blocked in the New York <laughs> in the Eastern Conference Finals. Sure. But, um, of course, you talk about that team. You had people like Anthony Mason on there who would be in the lane to try to intimidate uh, Scottie Pippen going down. And uh, th- and as you mentioned, the the, uh, the the Bulls had gone through this with the Pistons beforehand. How much were they mentally tougher when they finally got to go into against the Knicks, knowing what they had gone through with the Pistons and yet seeing this similar type of tactics that uh, Pat Riley had decided to put on and tried to try to uh, pull against the Knicks in the Eastern Conference Finals? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I, I'll put it this way. In 92, the first time that the Bulls played the Knicks during the Pat Riley era, they, they had played against each other the year before that in uh 1991 before riley got there and the bulls just you know mopped the floor with them they literally swept them mm-hmm. uh, that really famous jordan dunk where he dunks on patrick ewing and he kind of fakes charles oakley and john starks out of the play michael's called it his favorite dunk of all time yep um i don't i don't know if that was during the playoffs but it was during that season it was during yep. the 91 season yep. um it might have been during the playoffs but you know, they, they just had such an easy time with the Knicks. And um, so you you kind of take that, and I think the Bulls and certainly the media was expecting the 92 series to just be a repeat of that. And and there was good reason to think that. You know, the Knicks were, were good in 92 under Riley. They won 51 games, but they weren't, you know, they had struggled to get past the Pistons in the first round. They went to, you know, a, a winner-take-all game five. Um, Scottie Pippen had called charles oakley before that game five to wish the knicks luck um you know and i think there are a couple ways you could interpret it <laughs> scotty and scotty and oakley had been teammates you know scotty yep. had been oaks yes. rookie yep. um when you talk about hazing and stuff like that so there's that aspect of it um the bulls obviously hated the pistons there's that aspect of it the other interpretation of it that you could take is that the bulls just legitimately wanted to play the knicks because the knicks are a team that hasn't done anything. They had just swept them the year before. They had not made any big, massive roster upgrades. The big upgrade they had was Riley. Um, and so I think everybody kind of expected the Bulls to just take the, the Knicks out very easily. And then you have that series take place. And first off, the Bulls lose game one. The Knicks take game one. The Knicks are extremely physical with them. Game two rolls around. The Bulls win it, but it was close. Game three rolls around. The Bulls win that. But then the, the Knicks come back and win game four. And so it's a two to two series. Uh, the Bulls get game five. So it's three to two. They're on the cusp of winning the series. But Riley was so, what's the word? He was so disgusted, quite frankly, at how easily Jordan kind of just dominated the Knicks in game five. And so he just, his messaging was so violent between games five and six Mm -hmm. that he started kind of imploring his guys. And he showed that dunk. I was just telling you about on a loop on, it it would be the equivalent of like a vine. Now Um, (laughs) I guess vine doesn't exist anymore. How quickly that came and went, but, but it was the equivalent of a vine and he showed it on a loop for like seven minutes in the locker room. And he just showed it and showed it and showed it for seven minutes. Finally turns it off and on, on a VHS. And he says, this makes me sick. And he said, one of you guys, if Michael comes into lane, is going to knock Michael Jordan down to the floor and not help him up. Because you can't let him just take from you. 
You can't just let him have it. You guys are friends with him. He just feels like he can take from you. And you guys aren't really telling him he can't do it. So someone needs to send the message that this isn't going to happen anymore. Because if you want to beat this team, you have to take it from them. You can't just be nice about it. They're not just going to give it to you, especially Michael Jordan. You have to take it. And so there was a violent sort of messaging. He had put that in the players' mouths from a media standpoint the day before at practice. And so Michael was hearing this stuff from the media and being asked about it by the New York media. And he, at a certain point, actually went as far as to say, I can't wait for this series to be over because this is brutal. I feel like they're going to take my head off. I just want the series to be over. So to that point, from that standpoint, not to mention that Scottie Pippen was being vastly outplayed by Xavier McDaniel. And Xavier mm -hmm. McDaniel, when I quoted him for the book and interviewed him for the book, he said, I was taking a shot at Scottie's head every chance I yep. got. Mm -hmm. He was trying to hurt him. And he did, by the way. Scottie had a, a really badly injured ankle, which was part of the reason that the X-Man was outplaying him. So in my opinion prepared just because they played the Pistons. I mean, they almost lost that series. The Knicks beat the life out of them in game six. And so it went seven games. It was the first and only seven game series. Michael Jordan played for several years in that championship era. They, I think it was like 96 or 97 before he had another seven game series as a bull. Um, and this was 92. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I don't think the Pistons really, readied them for this in any way i think they were kind of caught off guard by how physical the knicks were um they had something by the end of the series it was like six flagrant fouls to none um in that series the knicks did it was just extremely extremely physical and the the bulls did not seem to want to have much to do with that team at all absolutely i mean um this 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 is bringing back great memories for me, but also painful memories of that game seven too. Um, <laughs> let's bring in our producer Aldo Gandia. He has a question for you, Chris, about sure. uh, uh, him from the Knicks' perspective, from the Bulls' perspective. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Aldo. Sure. I I got to tell you, this is a fantastic book, Chris. I got it this weekend, and I'm getting yelled at by my wife. You you shouldn't be reading a book while we're having dinner. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, and the two emotions that I was going through as I'm reading the book is number one, you know, it rekindled all these uh, 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 feelings against the New York Knicks because they were they played dirty, you know. And then the other uh, thing is I was just so envious and jealous of your writing because you tell really good stories and they're concise so and well drawn out. This is a must read for any basketball fan. And for those of us who followed that, the Bulls in the 90s, that championship era, there's tons of great stuff in here. And you, one of the stories that you share is about the gambling problem a lot of the Knicks mm -hmm. players had and how Phil, um, um, uh, Pat Riley addressed that issue with the team. And I actually, <laughs> during dinner, I'm reading this this portion to uh, my wife and, and she's chewing away and like, not, not <laughs> but I say, this is such a great story. So I wonder if you could relay that to our fans because it's a great, uh, I think, uh, personally, I think it's a great example of fantastic coaching. Well, thank you, first of all, for, for getting the book for, I'm, I'm just appreciative of anybody that enjoys it that much. Um, so the part that you're talking about, there are actually a couple things that came out about gambling and the reporting and in the book. Um, the, the part that you're referencing is uh, Pat Riley 
he was someone that tried to change the the focus whenever the team started to struggle. And so I think the part that you're referencing, the team had fallen into a little bit of a rut um, when they were out West. Um, they had a game coming up against the Warriors in 1992. And I think maybe they'd lost four or five or four straight or something like that. And um, what Pat Riley ends up doing as a way to shift their focus is he takes them at their hotel room, their, their hotel ballroom, and um, he puts four sets of chairs all over the room. One set for like Patrick Ewing, Xavier McDaniel, uh, Charles Oakley, and you know some of the higher paid guys. Uh, one group for Starks and Greg Anthony and um, Gerald Wilkins. Uh, another group for Anthony Mason and some of the younger guys that really had no playing experience. And then one group for just the, the white players. Uh, Tim McCormick was on that team and Kiki Vandaway. And then eventually what he says is the reason I'm putting you guys out here like this is that I feel like you guys are performing as clicks, frankly, that you guys are basically just groups of guys. You're not a team. And I, I look, I'm fine with you guys having your friends on the team and whatnot, but we have to be one team. Otherwise, we're not going to have any shot. We're not good enough to kind of overcome that. So there's that aspect of it. But then he kind of used that as a launching pad to be able to get into the fact that one of the things that had the potential to divide the team was gambling specifically. And the part that you're referencing is that he spoke to Greg Anthony and Mark Jackson, I think, who had had a shooting contest a free throw shooting contest or something like that after one practice. And it had gotten out to the coaching staff or to members of the coaching staff that I think they were gambling for like 30 grand or something like that in a free throw shooting contest. And I think Riley basically said more or less, how the hell can you expect someone to pass you the ball? If one of you guys has a grudge over somebody else owing $30,000, $40,000 to a teammate, like that's enough for a kid's tuition. What the hell are you thinking? Um, so it, you know, they ended up going on a winning streak immediately after that kind of speech. So, and later in the book, I get into the fact that the team really, really enjoyed gambling. Keep in mind, Charles Oakley had played with the bulls with Jordan and Jordan might've been the biggest gambler of all <laughs> just because of the resources and the money he had during those years. Um, and the fact that he was extremely competitive is obviously the last dance showed. So Oakley had some of that to him as well. By the time he got to New York, he always wanted to gamble. He was one of the higher paid guys on the team. So he always had the money to gamble. He was someone that, you know, I, I reveal in the book that carried 50 grand or so with him um, on any given trip and a leather duffel bag. But the team was constantly playing cards on the flights. Uh, so him, Ewing, other guys. But what ended up happening over time is that Oakley would get furious with teammates, a lot of whom were younger, who either didn't or didn't want to participate in the game. Um, because they just say they didn't have enough cash to do it. Or even if they had the cash, they didn't make enough money to do it. But a lot of times they would use the excuse. They didn't want to sound like they didn't have it. So they would say, I, I just don't have enough cash on me to play. Um, and so Oakley heard that, would get really angry about it. But what could he do? Eventually, he went out and bought one of those credit card imprint machines, the old ones that you use at the mall and stuff like that, that make whoosh, whoosh sounds. Yeah. Um, the scanner basically, he went and bought one of those machines so that he could rid his teammates of the excuse that they didn't have the cash, and then he would tax them anywhere between 10 12 percent of whatever the money that they were putting down on the game was. And that was what Charles Oakley did. 
but this was a team that really enjoyed gambling. Patrick Ewing played the lottery essentially every day, scratch off tickets and stuff like that, despite the fact that he was maybe the second or third highest paid guy of the era. Um, $125 million over the course of his career, I think it was. So, I mean, it was an interesting team from that standpoint, certainly. <laughs> Steven, go ahead. Wow, what an amazing story. Um, you grew up in Chicago, obviously. You went to uh, Northwestern Medell School of Journalism, obviously produced some of the, you know, big names in sports journalism as well as, uh, you know, in, you know, in media today. I didn't go there. I, I, I teach there. I, uh, oh, you I teach, teach there. there now. I teach there. I went to Michigan. Uh, I went to oh, University I apologize. Of Michigan. I, my, no my problem. No, no problem at all. But yeah, I didn't go there. Okay. So what was it? What was your, um, what was it like for you growing up and, uh, you know, you know, your experience, uh, you know, being born in Chicago and uh, what made you decide you want to pursue writing, you know, sport, become a sports writer slash journalist? Sure. Um, well, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I grew up in the South suburbs. Um, and for me, I always loved sports. You know, my mom thought that I was going to become a sports agent because I was that nerdy kid who would read the the back of the baseball cards and play the video <laughs> games and memorize players, batting averages. And the fact that Frank Thomas hit 323 and whatever it was, 1993 or 1994, whatever it was. Um, you know, I could still tell you that sort of stuff. Uh, so she figured that that had to have some purpose, like me memorizing or wanting to memorize those sorts of things. Um, so I was always into it from that standpoint. I liked watching the sports and understanding, you know, how they operated, the players operated the way they did and how good the players were or how certain players weren't that good or how to figure out whether they were good. Um, and then, you know, I got old enough to play sports myself. I was pretty good in baseball. Um, I played basketball until, frankly, I wasn't really tall enough to do it anymore. Um, I played at a really good school that, that went to the state finals. We ended up losing the state championship game to Sean Livingston's team in Peoria. But um, I went to high school with someone that, that played pro and was a lottery pick in Julian Wright. He was, a, um, he was Mr. Basketball in Illinois um, my senior year. But, you know, so I but I played baseball, you know, up until the time I got to the very end of high school. And realized I really I always wanted to go to Michigan as a kid. My parents met there as students. And um, so when I thought about it, I was like, well, I know I want to go to Michigan. I know I'm not realistically good enough to play baseball there or any sport there for that matter. So the thing I really know that I want, even in high school, because my high school had a, a radio station, a TV station and a school newspaper, I was involved in all three and I knew I really wanted to be a journalist when I got to college and when I graduated from college. And so knowing that in high school, I started to look at what would have been my senior year of varsity baseball and started thinking, you know, if I'm not going to play at the college level anyway, there's really not a reason beyond enjoyment and pleasure to play it as a senior when I could just cover the baseball team and broadcast the games on the radio station. Um, I'm probably better served doing those two things than I am by playing um, other than like the camaraderie of being a teammate, you know, and, and playing with teammates and stuff like that. Um, so I told my varsity coach that I was not going to play as a senior. He was utterly confused um, <laughs> because he basically was like, you know, you'd be a starter and blah, 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 blah. Wonderful. You know, and then obviously it, it tugged at me a little bit. 
and my teammates didn't understand, but I, I figured I had a chance to become a professional in one thing, but not the other. And, um, you know, so I think I made the right call just as far as, you know, how my career has progressed since then. But, um, but yeah, I, I knew I've known I wanted to be a journalist since late sophomore, junior year of high school. Chris, um, of course, we're talking with Chris uh, Herring, who uh, fant- fantastic stuff about uh, the 1990s New York Knicks, and the book is out and is in the uh, available, as they say, on Amazon and all bookstores um, uh, near you. Uh, Chris, uh, continuing to talk about the 1990s Knicks, they had great rivalries, of course, not only with the Bulls, the Indiana Pacers, and eventually Pat Riley going over to Miami, to where he coached there as well. Talk a little bit about Riley's leaving the Knicks and how that kind of left them in the lurch for a bit. Sure. Um, it, it did. I mean, it, it's weird because, you know, I tried to get this across a little bit in the book. The Knicks knew at a certain point he was leaving. I don't know if you could go back as far as during that last season in 94, 95 and say that they knew, but certainly, you know, the way, for instance, the, the big thing that Knicks fans, you know, maybe yourself included can really harp on is that, he faxed in his resignation. Yes. Um, which is obviously still really, you know, um, you Works know, grunts Knicks day. fans. Sure. It grinds their gears for sure. Um, I understand fans being upset about that. The truth was the Knicks management knew he was leaving by that yeah. point. Uh, they weren't surprised by it. It probably was a bad look. It, it actually reminds me a little bit of when, when you've got a defender in basketball that is guarding someone in the post and knows that a guy is going to lean into them too much, and then the defender backs away and lets the the post-up guy fall down. That's kind of what it felt like the Knicks did, is like they knew Riley was leaving, but they weren't ever going to let him out of the contract. They wanted him to look like the bad guy. Yep. He sent in the fax, and then the Knicks reacted. And they're like, oh, my God, he sent in a fax to quit. <laughs> and it was like they – I mean, they knew he was quitting <laughs> – they really didn't mind the fan base turning on Riley because it gave them more leverage to kind of look like the, the scorned lover, you know, as opposed to being the bad guy, the Knicks, I don't think they fundamentally did anything wrong. Um, maybe, you know, Riley said that Dave Checkets was not honest with him about something. We'll probably never know. You know, Pat didn't speak to me for the book. I spoke to everybody in his orbit. I possibly could. I asked questions of Pat, you know, even after he declined to be interviewed, I did email him a set of questions and kind of all the accusations that were out there, allegations that were out there about the way he handled it. But um, so the Knicks were not completely flat footed when he left because I think they knew he was going to leave. So they did have some options. You know, I think the one that maybe is forgotten about that, you know, I I spent some time writing about in the book was Chuck Daly as a possible replacement, a guy that probably would have replaced him better than anybody Um, because, you know, keep in mind the Knicks got their style of defense from those Pistons. Uh, Patrick Ewing had played for that dream team that Chuck Daly coached. If you're talking about well-dressed coaches during the nineties, you can go Pat Riley. And then the very next coach you think about is Chuck Daly, different sorts of hair, but Chuck Daly had pretty good hair too. Um, You know, and and just a a guy that people respected, but probably Chuck Daly probably had a better personality Mm -hmm. than Riley did. As far as just Riley was, really really super edgy all the time and really hard to get along with after a while and kind of an acquired taste after a while uh chuck daly you know the pistons players swore by him and dennis robin kind of went off the rails a little bit after chuck daly left i think because 
he was so personable and dealing with him and you could tell that he cared about Dennis and Dennis cared about Chuck. So um, he would have been probably a perfect fit for the Knicks, but what ended up happening, um, and I have this in the book, Chuck said no to the offer. Yep. The Knicks moved on. But then according to the team doctor from those years, who also served as a team doctor with the Dream Team, who was very good friends with Chuck, Chuck circled back like 36 or 48 hours later to the Knicks and said, I'm, I actually made a huge mistake by saying, no, I'd still really love to have the job. Um, and the general manager from those years, Ernie Grunfeld, claims it didn't quite happen that way, but he basically did confirm that Chuck Daly did circle back at one point. The job. Um, he claimed it was more like a year later that Chuck circled back. The Dream Team doctor said, no, it was like two, three days. And by the way, I heard that story from Ernie. It wasn't from uh, Chuck that he told me that. It was Ernie that told me that like two or three days later. So not sure who's telling the truth there, whose recollection is better. Um, but either way, Chuck Daly might have been an option for them even after he turned it down. They ended up going with Don Nelson, who I think was a fantastic coach um, or a fantastic X's and O's guy, but was kind of from a different planet when it came to the way he wanted to run offense. It yep. was all the stuff the Knicks needed. But frankly, I don't think the Knicks were really ready for Don Nelson, even though I think he was spot on about everything he wanted to push for. A point forward to run the offense so the Knicks could make better use of Derek Harper as a shooter yep. and maybe take some of the burden off Patrick as a low post option. Taking the burden off Patrick as a low post option because he's starting to get older. Um, you know, letting the offense flow differently and using kind of inverting the positions the way he'd done with Golden State to have Tim Hardaway post up and Minute bull shoot threes. Patrick was capable of shooting from outside and loved to do that anyway. So it could have worked well, have Anthony Mason post up to have them be more of an offense oriented team than a defense one, you know, and grind out sorts of games uh, to, you know, rely a little bit more on their offense, but also to practice them less hard than Pat Riley had done, where you'd have them in three and three and a half hour long practices and two and a half hour shoot arounds where the guys had to tape up because it was so physical. All those things were smart, not to mention that he wanted to trade Ewing for Shaq which if there had been any sort of reception from Orlando, of course you do that. I mean, yeah. obviously now in hindsight, it's easy to say, but the league was weird back then about trading old guys for young guys where for some reason that was appealing to teams because someone was more of a proven guy. If you don't believe me, think about the Marcus Camby for Charles Oakley trade yeah. that happened when Camby was a second year player. Um, and the Knicks were able to get him just by trading Charles Oakley. This is a bizarre time that you would never see that happen now, but it's just a very bizarre time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all those things taken into account, Don Nelson knew what he was doing, but he wasn't a very good communicator, and he didn't get buy-in from from Ewing. Starks right. hated the guy. Right. Um, Oakley was really the only leader on the team that was willing to hear him out, and then Oakley broke his toe during the season and was out rehabbing, and so he wasn't really around the team as much. So Don Nelson lost the team very quickly which was how you got to Jeff Van Gundy. But it was just a weird time to consider that the, the Knicks were in fourth place when Don Nelson got fired mm -hmm. the same season that they hired him. They were 34 and 25, which, you know, generally speaking, Knicks fans today would kill for that record in any season. Yes, um, yes. It was just a very different time. Yeah, let's talk a little bit also about that time. Madison Square Garden was the place to be. Um, you had Spike Lee. You had, like um, – all these type of celebrities, Chris, in there. Um, it, it was just a ticket to get. It was like Broadway, a Broadway. It was like Hamilton 
it, it, it was like really the ticket to get at that time. Uh, talk a little bit about that atmosphere and some of the people who will be seen in the games. Yeah. Um, celebrities all the time, man. I mean, Spike obviously, you know, had really hit it big from a movie standpoint from his film career um, in the late eighties, really. And so when you talk about the early nineties, you know, he, he's gone from sitting in section 304 to sitting down on the court, um, you know, you know, which maybe was a benefit sometimes, you know, maybe in some of those Reggie Miller moments was, was more of a detriment. Um, but, you know, he had become kind of a, a big staple at the games, but you had um, anybody and everybody there. I mean, you had Maury Povich that would be there. You had <laughs> Connie Chung that would sit next to him. Yep. You had, yeah. uh, you know, you had, a lot of people that were just there all the time. Uh, Try to remember the guy's name that, that the host from 60 Minutes that passed several years ago. The the really prominent black uh, anchor that they had. Uh, uh, Ed Bradley. Ed Bradley, exactly. He was a huge Knicks fan. I heard yes. he essentially was watching the Knicks on his deathbed, which you know <laughs> shows how dedicated he was. But also kind of made me a little bit sad. If it made him happy to watch it, I'm happy for him. But. <laughs> Uh, sad just to think that man like i wish they could have given him a little bit more exactly before he left exactly. uh but there, there there were just so i mean there's almost too many to count but you know at the games madonna you know any big celebrity that was in town was going to be at a knicks game and you know in the book i have the detail about the fact that um jfk jr uh was dating daryl hannah back then yes and they broke up daryl hannah had season tickets for the two of them they break up obviously he's not going to go to games with her anymore but JFK Jr. was a fan, so he wanted his own tickets. Um, he was not like necessarily a low-key person, but some of this was just because of the makeup of who his family was. Like he didn't want to be seen as just this this guy that um was just kind of mooching off people, whether it was Daryl Hannah or anything else. So he wanted season tickets, but he didn't make a big deal out of it when he asked the Knicks for them. Mm-hmm. So um he did put in a request for season tickets at some point after the breakup. Um, and But he wrote it in like a normal letter. Like if you or I wrote the letter and said we were JFK Jr., that was how he wrote it instead of having like official stationery or like a letterhead. So <laughs> the team didn't know how to take the letter. Some people in the office saw it and took it seriously. Others thought it was a prank. But the person that it really mattered most to the, the person that was over the season ticket seating looked at it and thought it was a prank. So he did actually fulfill the, the ask, the request, but he ended up putting JFK Jr. like in the 300 level seats highest up in the arena. And when it got back to Dave Checkett's, the Knicks team president, he was like mortified that they'd done that to him. But the reality was JFK Jr. didn't complain about the seats initially because I think on some level he was probably a little bit surprised at where they'd seated him, but he also was just grateful that he could get some tickets because they were that hard to get at the time. And they had a a season ticket waiting list of 15,000 people at a time where they also had the most expensive seats in the NBA. So, um, you know, they did get him better seats eventually, but he was kind of, it wasn't something he was pushing for. The Knicks (laughs) apologized and said, let us make this right for you because they did have such a, I mean, the way it was described to me was that, they could the marketing staff could throw in Knicks tickets for anything that they were having trouble selling something for circus rangers the Knicks, you know not the Knicks dancers but the you know now they have the rockets and the 
you know, the people that do the nutcracker performances and stuff like that in the holidays, like they were saying anything that we can't sell tickets for that we're just struggling to move tickets for. If we said, we'll give you a free Knicks ticket with it, like it would be gone the same day. Right. Um, because people just wanted so badly to be in the garden for those games and it was hard to do. Yeah. So uh, before we let you go, let's talk about the current NBA so far. Um, you know, the Bulls suffered another loss tonight to the uh, Sixers. You know, Sixers are on the roll since the uh, Harden-Simmons trade. Um, you know, Milwaukee is on a run again. You know, they beat Phoenix in a rematch of uh, the NBA Finals over the weekend yesterday. Um, how close do you follow the current NBA and uh, which team do you have an eye on uh, of both the West and the Eastern Conference right now. Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> despite the book and the fact that the book did pull me away for a while, just as far as um, complete focus on the NBA, I feel like I'm kind of back in the saddle now as far as mm -hmm. that. I'm a senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated. So I watch pretty closely. I watch, I'm trying to think how many games a week do I probably watch? Probably between seven and eight games a week. You know, wow. sometimes it's more than that. Um, in a normal situation, it would be more than that. But to try to watch two games a night. Um, so, no, I watch plenty of, of NBA. Um, I've been paying very close attention to the Bulls. I wrote before the season that I thought the Bulls had a very good chance to have home court advantage. I wrote a long feature on them and kind of all the reasons I thought people were overlooking them coming into the season. So I, I feel good about having been right about a lot of that. Um, I do think that maybe – the injuries kind of put them in a spot where they're a little bit too thin. And that was always a question that I had about them going into the season was they sure. have a really good six, seven man rotation, but if they lose certain people, particularly um, in the front court, it just kind of makes them a little bit more thin than you like. The irony is I think it's been more their backcourt with, with Caruso and Lonzo ball that just sure. is really, you know, my, my best friends are, are Bulls fans and they, they were so enamored with the the start and the first place even until a week or two ago. And I yeah. told them I really don't think they're going to hold up much longer without these two guys. That's why it was kind of a real shame that Caruso had the second injury um, and that Lonzo's injury is going to keep him out for so long or his surgery is going to keep him out so long just because um, it really feels like they need those guys and DeRozan and, and Ball. I'm sorry, DeRozan and uh, Levine just because they – if they're not special defensively, they're not that good. Yeah, they're okay. They're they're okay. Which look, that's still an uh, an upgrade from what they've been the last four years. But they're only so good if they don't have much defense to speak of, because it puts a lot of pressure on DeRozan and Levine. And um, you know, not to mention that this will be a first playoff experience for Levine. Um, and it, you start to feel differently if you're talking about being a top three seed. Seeds maybe you feel a little bit better about it. But now, let's look at it. Like, even if you were a top seed, you might have to play the Nets, um, which I wouldn't feel good about them in that matchup. Mm -hmm. if, if Brooklyn's at full strength, I wouldn't feel good about Milwaukee. I wouldn't feel good about the Heat, quite frankly. I wouldn't feel good about the Sixers, who I don't think they've beaten Embiid in like three, four years at this point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think Furkan Korkmaz is something like 11-0 against the Bulls for his career. Um, so you, you can see holes there. And, um, you know, maybe they get Patrick Williams back. You're hoping that they get the other guards back. But, you know, I've been paying very close attention to them. And I thought for a while, it's been a concern for a while now that they haven't been able to beat the best teams. But I think a lot of that does circle back to the idea that the injuries have just been too severe for them. So I'm interested in them. 
Um, I'm, I'm certainly really interested in uh, the Sixers, you know, with, with the Harden trade. Harden looks like a completely, completely different player, which, you know, mm-hmm. as much as I'd love to praise him for that, you know, it, it feels like he was sandbagging pretty hard mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Um, so, you know, but they do look like a really good team. It looks like that was a, a fantastic trade for them. Uh, Tyrese Maxey's kind of been unlocked. With, as, as part of that trade, which I think was something that was kind of overlooked. Um, you know, when you look at Brooklyn, I'm, I'm still not worried about them yet, but all of a sudden, like if Ben Simmons doesn't look right when he comes back or if he takes a long time to knock off the rust, uh, all of a sudden that team does not look that special. I mean, unless Kyrie can play both home and away, um, you know, it, it turns into Durant having to hoist the whole thing up by himself like he did last year. Um, which he almost did it, but, you know, that's not what you signed up for if you're Brooklyn, you know, before the season started or last year when you traded for Harden. So, you know, there, there's just a lot of really great competition. I mean, the Heat have been fantastic. I haven't even mentioned Boston, who's been the hottest team since the turn of the new year and has basically taken out everybody at one point or another since the second half. Um, so, you know, and has had the best defense in the league since January 1st. So, uh it, it's going to be tough sledding for the Bulls. It's going to be tough sledding for a lot of teams, I think. Um, the Hawks are going to have a rough time. You know, they're a team I didn't think that highly of. Uh, coming into the season after last year, I thought people were too too high on them. Um, I'm fascinated by all of it. I think the East is a little bit more interesting than the West, mm-hmm. just because I think the West, you know, Phoenix has proven to me that they're the best team out there. And, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's maybe – it's not a small market. You know, we, we talk about Phoenix like it's a small market – um, people just don't believe the hype with them. Um, even though it doesn't feel like it's that much hype, but they've, you know, for a second straight year, they've been better this year than they were last year. They almost beat Milwaukee yesterday. Um, they've won plenty of games with Chris Paul hurt or with Devin Booker hurt. Um, so I'm, I'm very intrigued to see what they can do. Um, I'm interested to see how Golden State looks like when they get Draymond Green back. Um, but I'm, I'm more intrigued by the East than I am the West because I think Phoenix far and away is the best team out West. Oh, absolutely. And of course, those playing tournaments are going to be kind of interesting this year with the six going through seven through 10. Um, what is it with the Lakers, though? I mean, everyone talks about LeBron and, and the Lakers, but um, they're in ninth right now at, at this point. Can, can we see them actually getting over and getting over that hump and at least get, get, trying to get into the to the to that uh, uh, upper echelon getting past that? Um. Not when you say past that, I don't know if you're referring to getting in the sixth spot or higher. Yeah, getting, so that getting, they could yeah, avoid finally it. into that sixth spot. Yep. No, no, yeah. I don't. I don't see it. I mean, there's a pretty big gap in the standings. And I, I don't have them right in front of me, but I, I think they're closer at this point to being out of the race entirely. Yeah. And missing the plan than they are to making the you know avoiding the plan because they play so well. Um, I just don't see it, you know, and, and not to mention that LeBron, um, you know, not to mention that LeBron is in a situation where he, you know, he's not playing tonight. And, you know, while we all marveled at their performance over the weekend and, and the 54 points that he had, um, you do worry. And this was actually the fear that I had about them last year is that it was a year where Davis and LeBron had both been hurt. And that all of a sudden, because of how much time they missed, they were going to have to play so hard just to kind of solidify the play-in stuff yep. last year. After they were the, the number one, number two seed for the whole year, while healthy, all of a sudden LeBron's knee twists the wrong way on a freak play, 
and you know it they he and ad come back but then they're kind of in some games out of other games you know banged up not at 100 percent full strength and then they were playing for their lives just the last couple weeks of the season you don't want to have to see team they're not healthy when the playoffs actually kick in and and come up and that was essentially what happened last year now granted I had the Suns winning that series last year anyway before the series started. Whether LeBron was banged up, whether Davis missed time, whatever. The Suns were a better team by the time mm-hmm. the playoffs rolled around because the Lakers had to scrap so hard and really run themselves ragged just to get there. Um, and I think that this year might be a lot of the same thing. So even if the Lakers could work their way to six, okay, so then at that point they're playing like the Warriors or the Grizzlies. Um, maybe they beat the Grizzlies just because they're a little bit less experienced, but the Grizzlies made the playoffs last year. John Morant had a 40 point game against the Utah jazz to start the playoffs last year. They beat the warriors in a play in last year to make the playoffs. Um, if I'm the Grizzlies, I'm not afraid of the Lakers. I don't think they're really afraid of anybody. If you've watched that team, if you've listened to the way they speak, if you've seen the way they kind of piss off opponents with the way they speak and the sort of swagger that they yep. carry, they, they don't strike yeah. me as a team that's afraid. And quite frankly, like if you're saying that the Lakers are going to beat them, you're only saying that either because of LeBron or because like of the appeal of the Lakers brand, the, the Grizzlies have legitimately go look at the list of teams that, um you know, that have the records against 500 teams are better. It's, it's a pretty scary statistic to look at if you're a Bulls fan. Yeah. In all seriousness, but if you're if you're a Grizzlies fan, I think the Suns are the only team that's won more games against 500 teams or better than the Grizzlies this year. Like they're not just like a, a oh they're not experienced so they can't win. They've already played some big games. They played in some games in the bubble before last year. They played in games last year, and they've certainly proven themselves. As far as I'm concerned, this year they would be number one in the East by like a few games if they were in the Eastern Conference. And frankly, they should be in the Eastern Conference just ge- geographically. But anyway, um, I mean, I, I don't I don't see a universe in which the Lakers, unless everybody just, you know, somehow is back at full strength. And like I said, LeBron's not right now. Um, and it sounded like his knee was actually really bothering him tonight, not just a little bit. Um, and Anthony Davis, we're not sure when to expect him back. Even if those guys were back and healthy, the Russell Westbrook issue, it, it just doesn't really feel like a year that they're going to figure this out. And it, it seems more likely that they're going to have to retool or or make some real deals to try to make this team legitimate again. Speaking of the Lakers, we'll close it out, out on this note. Um, the winning time came out on uh, HBO yesterday. Uh, we had Jeff Perlman on our show before, uh, a terrific uh, author and uh, a sports writer on his own. Um do you think that um, your book, obviously the next, um, you know, with a rough tumble image, could someday make it to the, uh, you know, the t- TV or maybe silver screen? Uh, is there anything like that in the works in the future? Uh, so so I was going to say between us, I guess we're on a, a podcast that people are watching, a, a YouTube channel that people are watching. Uh, yeah, it, it, it will. Um, at least that's the oh, plan. That's great. That's great. Um, We've got something in the works. I, I I can't really get into detail about who exactly or where or who's who's involved, but there was a lot of interest. We actually had it. First of all, thank you also for the congratulations too. Um, there was a lot of interest even just when the book came out 
before the book came out, I should say, um, from different production companies and, and filmmaking companies and stuff like that, that made, I would say, relatively small offers. Uh, it's called book optioning, which is, you know, Jeff has talked about that at length, maybe discussed it with you all as well, where you get people to kind of sniff around your book. And they make a, a a nominal offer to um, to potentially, you know, essentially book option rights. All it means is that they hold the rights to someday do something with your book as far as film stuff, as far as a documentary, what have you. Um, rarely does it happen. Jeff is the first one to tell you that. He said he's had maybe five or 10 times that that's happened with him where then it stalls out. And, you know, these companies will get the right to do something with your book for 18 months at a time. And then they'll pay you to do that, which is great to have some money for it. But, you know, it doesn't mean anything is actually going to happen. So we had some companies that were offering to do that um, six, seven months before the book came out. Um, But the more, you know, we started to get more offers and also the 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 low nature of the offers that we're getting that far out. If you're an author, you want to get big offers to kind of convince you to pull your book off the market and just hand it to someone and say, do with it as you will. Um, so as we start getting closer to the release date, um, because uh, again, like if someone is exclusively going to take the book, who's offering you so much money to do that, to kind of say, well, I'm not even interested in shopping it around anymore. But the closer we got to the book release date, the more we started to say, let's just roll the dice a little bit and see how well the book does, how much interest the book generates. It's going to be about a major market. So some important people are going to read it. Maybe someone will really fall in love with it and want to do something with it. Um, I don't think it'll end up being film the way Jeff's is. Uh, I guess this is not film. His is his TV. But I, you know, that's one thing. I don't think the Knicks were quite... I'm not trying to talk them down. I don't think they were quite interesting enough to really have a film TV element around them. Uh, they did have some really interesting personalities, but they did never win. And uh, so they didn't really have that many iconic figures. Like the most iconic player they had was Patrick Ewing. And um, God bless him, but there's a big difference between Patrick. Like all the things that made Patrick what he was kind of were all the things that didn't make Magic Johnson what he was or vice versa. Right. Like the big bright smile, the I'll talk to anyone and smile with anyone and take pictures and sign for anyone is not Patrick Ewing. And so <laughs> you're kind of working at a deficit from that standpoint. Um, those people were like iconic Knicks figures to Knicks fans. I don't think they had that sort of appeal with everybody. Um, and it's really hard to have that appeal with everybody when you never win a championship. The Lakers won a lot of those. So I don't suspect it will be that, but we do have something at least lined up tentatively. Uh, we're still finalizing it, so I can't go into too much detail. But the hope and the, the expectation for now is that there will be a docu-series um, about the team and uh, hopefully within the next couple of years. Well, we look forward to it. And Chris Herring, uh, the author of Blood in the Garden, The Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks, published by Simon & Schuster, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all of the places that you get books um, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. We thank you for coming on with us and spending so much time. I didn't even broach the uh, the rivalry with the Indianapolis uh, with the Pacers and Reggie Miller and uh, that magical time in the Garden. Those those great series that they had with them. Um, perhaps we can have you on and, and we'll talk about it at that time. But thank you so much for joining us tonight. For sure. You, Next time, I appreciate you guys having me on. Take care. Thank Take you care. very much. And the Double A uh, team will continue on the Barroom Network right after this. <laughs> Thank you.
would like to thank our guests that came on tonight, Chris Herring, senior uh, writer for Sports Illustrated and author of the book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. And also Mark Kim, uh, social media strategist for The Athletic. We'd like to thank both of them for coming on tonight. Steven, some, again, great stuff. And again, hitting that out of the park with getting the guests tonight. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, as always. Um, we went over a little bit tonight. Um, the draft on tap that was uh, supposed to have come at the top of the hour, uh, uh, there was a, uh, some personal thing came up. So unfortunately, that will be rescheduled back to Thursday in its original time slot instead of uh, uh, 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock Central. So uh, we wanted to apologize to anybody who stuck around in hopes of uh, watching the draft on tap tonight. Yes, and uh, instead you got to see us, uh, Stephen and I, uh, talk with uh, Chris Herring. But some fascinating stuff, especially talking about the 1990s uh, Knicks and the Bulls rivalry and, of course, a little bit current NBA. So we certainly hope that you enjoyed that while you were, ho uh, while you were thinking that uh, Draft on Tap was coming on at 9 Central um, tonight. But uh, as we mentioned, it will be on again in its regular time on Thursday. Aldo and Dan will be on with you at that time. But um, as we wrap up tonight, Stephen, um, as we uh, talked about uh, earlier tonight, we talked we talked about Russia and Ukraine. We also talked a little bit about Phil, uh, Michael, Phil Mickelson and uh, Saudi Arabia. And we also talked a little bit about uh, 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 we also talked a little bit about uh, Kirk Herbstreit going to Amazon uh, for Thursday night football. So it's good. It, it, it's never uh, we are never short on news on this program whenever we come on on Monday nights and our, our next show will be in two weeks on March 21st. And who are the guests that we have on top or who is who are tentatively some of the guests that we have on top of that show? Yes. Uh, so the guests on the 21st, we have our Eric Winolda, uh, former United States men's national team soccer player. And they uh, currently were uh, formerly with the Fox Sports Analyst and now work as a consultant. Uh, he is tentatively joining. Uh, he is currently on, a, on the road uh, traveling with the, uh, the tournament team that he's coaching. So we'll double check with him on his availability. Mm -hmm. And the second guest would be Jonah Javad, who is a sports writer, uh, Persian background, uh, with the WFAA, an NBC, ABC affiliate in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, we look forward to having both of them. Uh, if anything changes, uh, you know, we'll definitely uh, post it on our uh, Twitter as well as on the uh, upcoming show, uh, show notification on the, uh, the Barroom Network. Yes. And don't forget to follow uh, Stephen at AsianSportsFan.1 and myself at Fangs Bites. And, of course, don't forget to follow the Barroom Network at Barroom Network here on Twitter. Well, we thank you for joining us tonight, uh, Stephen. Uh, great show, great guests. Thank you uh, again for your work. And Aldo, uh, our producer, thank you for, for your work as well and chiming in as well uh, uh, for your question tonight uh, for Chris on uh, the, the New York Knicks and the Blood of the Garden. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, we will continue uh, to do to try and stand by the Asian community, the AAPI community with a double A team. And we will see you next time on the Barroom Network. Have a good night. Thank you, folks. Have a good night.